0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. My name is Tyler Bell. I am the host, writer, and creator of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Dark Fiction Storytelling Podcast. If you're here for that, specifically the fiction episodes, that this is not one of those. This is a discussion slash sometimes interview podcast that is uh, non, non-canon. Uh, it has nothing to do with the regular episodes, although I do talk about stuff like that. Um, today, we are going to be talking about The Menu, a 2022 film uh, directed by Mark Myland- Starring Anya Taylor-Joy and Ray Fiennes. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and just pop out some, some quick announcements and uh, just tell you guys a little bit about what's going on. So if you don't want to listen to this, just go ahead and skip ahead a little bit in this program. I've been trying to get some uh, chapter selectors in there. So if you have chapter selection on your device, just go ahead and hit next. and You can skip to the regular episode. If not, uh, just guess just guess, just go ahead and scroll through. Um, I wish you all the best of luck, but these aren't going to be very long. So, um, just welcome to the new year. I think this is the first horror and lit club of 2023. Um, yes, it is. It is not coming out in January, although it is the January episode because I am busy, a busy bee, a busy, busy, busy boy. Uh, I've been trying to just kind of, um, Finish up ancillary tasks ahead of 2023. For those of you who follow along, please do consider joining our Discord. There's going to be a link in the show notes for that. If you want to talk about the podcast and keep up to date with any of our stuff, uh, lore, guessing, all that cool shit. And we also have a Facebook page, uh, Facebook group, West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club group on Facebook, which is – it's on Facebook, unfortunately. And uh, you can always hit me up on Twitter. Find me anywhere and talk to me about stuff. But today, on the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. (laughs) No, sorry. Uh, But today, today, we, um, right now, Jesus Christ, stay on track, Tyler. God damn it. I, uh, right now, um, things have been delayed going into this new season. I've just been, it's been delays nonstop since the beginning of COVID. COVID kicked my ass, and now I'm old I guess I'm not old. I'm I'm actually fairly young. I'm 35. Um, I'm finding out that 35 is extremely young. Um, Everybody that I knew when I was 35, when I was a child just seemed like they were old because I was fucking five years old. You know what I'm saying? But um, I guess I am a little bit more susceptible to disease nowadays. And so I've, I never got the flu at all basically in my entire life somehow. Uh, unless maybe I got it once or twice when I was a kid and you, I can't really remember, but I, I, I've i never really gotten the flu. And then this year, COVID twice in a row, um, I got the basic like variant and then I got the secondary va- variant right after it. So I got the one, two kazoo. That's a whole month gone, just a, a month into the history books. And then this week or last last month, uh, right before Christmas, I got the flu again. Uh, just the basic flu, which is nowhere near as bad as COVID, but, um, it did take me out. And unfortunately I work with my voice, um, and my brain. So the the flu is especially debilitating because it makes you fucking, you can't think as well as you can. Um, but you know, with all those delays and a number of other things, I mean this, like my holiday season sucked so bad. It was horrible, uh, we, we do have some exciting stuff come up uh, coming up down the pipeline. Uh, I'm always working on other projects and stuff, and there's some things that have been going on for a very long time that are about to be launched soon, most notably. And if you are a fan of board games, card games, and uh, just novel tabletop sort of games, um, our in-house made game called Moons is going to be getting a Kickstarter treatment, and we're going to try to launch that sometime this year uh, so that I can recuperate some of the time in my mind <laughs> that I spent on it. Um, it is actually a fun game. It is a fun, quick, uh, it's very much like Uno. It's not going to be playing Moons is not going to be the um, absolute focus of your night. It's not like Catan, you know, where it's, it's going to be a, a six-hour struggle but um, it is a very, very competitive uh, small deck card game that I think uh, I think people will really like. And so that's going to be coming out soon. If you join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash um I am very soon, as soon as I get the layout done, I will be making a printable version of that card game for other people um, on the... Uh, Other people in the Patreon, you have patrons. I'll be making a printable version of it, so you can just print it up at home if you want to try to play it yourself and don't want to shell out the money for the card game. Um, That's fine. It would be one of those things where I'd like to offer, like, free cards, but without the possibility of a Kickstarter and, like, economy of scale, ordering one deck of cards just to, like, make sure, like, proof it and stuff to my house is uh, fucking, like, $40 it's, it's unfathomably expensive because it's such a large printing job that if you don't do it via economy of scale, it ends up making the, uh, the product very, very expensive and it's a pain in the ass. So, um, hopefully when the Kickstarter launches, I'll, 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 I'll make some fucking money. I don't know. People make money off of Kickstarter on projects that seem more insane than that. And at least it's a new game. So, I don't know. I'm going to be practicing my movie making skills. I'm going to make a whole like little trailer thing for it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. And, uh, and hopefully it's actually going to be, you know, um, successful to some degree. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, I had to fully redesign all of the cards, not like redraw the basic card art, but I did have to um, basically change them so that they're more readable. I I got a little uh, beside myself and made them too fancy and people didn't know what the fuck they were looking at when they looked at the cards in real life. So hopefully with that change. And uh, then there's some stuff with the rules coming up. It'll all be, uh, it'll all be available to some degree throughout the next year. Uh, The other thing I've been working on is something I can't actually talk about because I have signed an NDA. I can say that I signed an NDA. um, But other than that, I I can't, I can't do anything else. Um, We do have some upcoming conventions and appearances coming this year. As soon as I've paid for tables and I know uh, where they're going to be, I will let you all know. Um, We're trying to get, Just go places, go places, get the name out there um, and uh, talk to people. We are going to be working aside some, uh, hopefully working alongside some new uh, friends, so to say, uh, in the upcoming year. And hopefully that all works out too. So once um, we know where we're going to be with conventions this year, we're going to hit you guys up and we're going to let you know where uh, we will be. So look forward to that. Um, all that said, oh no no, one last thing, of course. Um, if I haven't told you guys yet, the West Side Fairy Tales, um well not the West Side Fairy Tales, me, I am. I am going to be published. Um, I found a publisher uh who likes my work and they will be publishing um knock on wood, the uh my first novel, my debut novel, West by God, and the fourth quarter of twenty twenty three which is wild. Okay. So it, it took me 36 years and by the time it comes out, assuming everything works. What well, I'm always nervous, you know? Um, but, uh, the, the publisher is called Henlow press. They're a small press out of, uh, Huntington, West Virginia. And I think I might've even mentioned this in the last HLC to a degree, but, um, things are going good and I'm having a lot of fun and, um, they're great. And right now they're very busy with uh, their other launches. And if you want to see some of their other work, go and check them out the com, I believe. H uh, E N L O. But with all that aside, um, the menu. What a movie. So the menu is a roughly hour and 45, 47 odd minute. Film, like I said earlier, directed by Mark Miland, written by some other people who are very good at writing, but whose names um, I'm not going to look up again because I just don't really feel like it. Uh, I recorded this entire episode once already, and uh, it fucking almost killed me that when I finished, all of the audio was gone. It all it wasn't gone. It just it recorded in a way that is literally So impossible to listen to that it's, it's unreleasable, uh, not just like quiet or bad. It's just, it's horrible, horrible, horrible audio. Um, not even me being a stickler. It's literally like, I could not listen to it for like more than three seconds because of this delay thing. It's not a big deal, but the menu, great film. I watched this uh, a couple weeks ago now, um, and have just been trying to work into talking about it and it's great. Um, a very deep, very deep film, um, and also very small. And I really appreciate it. I like a small film. F- movies today have gotten too fucking big. They really have. Uh, I- I'm 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 over Marvel movies. I don't know who's excitedly watching them anymore. Avengers Endgame came out, and I watched that, and I'm like, okay, cool. I have put a pin in ten years of watching these fucking films. I have not seen any of the new Spider Man except for the Into the Spider Verse, which is great. I didn't watch any of the, like, post-Endgame movies, I don't think. I watched, like, the Doctor Strange one because it was made by Sam Raimi. And, you know, whatever. But I I digress. These movies are just too fucking big, all right? There's all kinds of moving parts, and there's all kinds of shit going on. One million billion extras and all of this juggling. And it's kind of cool to have things on a large scale. You know, I like, I appreciate the idea of a big-scale movie. But there's just too much of them nowadays. And, like, I like some fucking variety, I guess, when it comes to AAA movie making. And you just do not get that up at the top anymore. And I feel like maybe, like, there's somebody that has convinced themselves up at the top that you can't make good films with just a small cast. and uh, But that's the best thing about the horror genre and, like, everything that's kind of horror adjacent. That A24 aesthetic is like you know, not all of the movies are like best, and maybe some of them are a little navel gazy and uh, and like pretentious or whatever. But like, I I really appreciate that because when you're being navel gazy and pretentious, it usually means you're at least trying to do something interesting and new. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you it's it's rather it's it's rare when you like you fail and the failure is just boredom that you are trying to do anything interesting. You know what I'm saying? Like. Maybe, uh, you know, if it's an editing issue and it's dull, but like a lot of the Marvel movies and stuff, they are popcorn, man. And 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 if they if it is not fresh and you're not going in with the vibe, it is dull, you know? Um, and I think that kind of, I, I know this seems like a massive diversion before we even start talking about the movie, but I just kind of want you to think about stuff like that as we go in and talk about the menu. Um, the difference between small, direct, giving me just, giving me something that I want, you know, having an idea and sticking with the idea is the core of the idea, as opposed to making up something to facilitate this other idea that you have and not staying focused enough to run it through to the end. So just, I know that sounds a little abstract, but when you get back to it um, at the end, you'll, you'll get what I'm saying and why I really like the menu. So as I said, this is a small cast film the menu, um, just as we're going to jump into this, obviously this is massive spoilers. Crushingly massive spoilers. Massive spoilers and, like, also in-depth um, collegiate literary analysis going on during the entirety of this. So the menu does. It has a small cast. Um, there are three, two, 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 two. So five, three plus eight, 11. Yeah, about 14, 15-ish total characters in the movie that actually have, like, um, independent spoken lines, okay? And um, the, the the basic premise is there is an island on which is a restaurant, a getaway restaurant that you have to take a boat from the nearby, from the mainland to get to. You, you get on the boat, you go to this, this restaurant... And uh, you you eat at it. it's called the Hawthorne. It is overseen by a very famous chef. I will not be using any of the character names, with a few notable exceptions, because they're they're not valuable. Um, th- th- this I'll get into it, but basically, just referring to the characters as who they are is is fully sufficient. It has that uh, it has a very play like vibe. But yes, the small group of people they arrive on this island by boat they are all clearly very wealthy, distracted, uh upper class dipshits save potentially one or two of them, okay? Um this is a whole thing. It's it's reserved, you know, you have to get there. It's really really expensive. We are introduced to our protagonist played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who I'll be calling protagonist through most of this and um her date who brought her, the the person who brought her who is potentially her boyfriend you might have that feeling when they arrive Um, and then she's definitely treating him like a boyfriend uh, you know a little bit of affectionate and like comes some close walking so they definitely know each other very well we'll get into it later but he is um, kind of a scatterbrained overly excited dork right and his name is Tyler. He's one of the very few ones that I will be actually mentioning by name because his name is my name. And uh, so I actually remembered it. But he is like the douchebag. As a character, he is the douchebag. Um, all of these characters have very much a vibe to them where it is, it's is—it's kind of like modern-day Clue. They are all wealthy, elite-type people. And um, referring to them by their their disposition or their occupation you know is is much more valuable than referring to them by their name because they are not in um respect to the story as a whole uh, individual characters they're not they're not people they are stand-ins for concepts and so in that case it's perfectly fine you know we have our colonel mustards our miss scarlets back in the day in this case we have um And I'll just tell you the tables, all right? Obviously, they they lead these people on a little tour of the island. They get to see some stuff. There's a uh, a drying shed where they're drying out some meat. You get to see the Spartan um, barracks where all of these chefs live. And then everybody is seated at their tables inside this very uh, clean, crisp, hard right angles, engineered wood and steel and glass um, dining room. And it's half kitchen, half dining room. Total, if you looked at the floor plan of it, um, and everybody has their own little seats. Obviously, Tyler, the douchebag, and the protagonist, they sit together. They are, if you're walking in the door, if you're looking at this as a as a play, right, with the kitchen in the background and everybody in the foreground, they are um, stage left, right? Stage left and sat closest to the audience um, through the almost semi-literal fourth wall of this uh, glass piece, right? It's um, a large, tall, floor-to-ceiling glass windows, and and it should be said that all of this is very much. It's got such a play vibe. It's just you could shoot this. You you could redo this in a high school. Honestly, I don't even think there's enough cursing, um, and violence. Really, that you you could definitely like. There's nothing that happens in this that doesn't happen in a in a Shakespeare play. You could a, a high school students could put this on. That's how functionally simple it is and how small the cast is. Not saying they would necessarily do it, but you you could get you could get away with putting this together in local theater because this is the entire basically the entire set for the movie. And um they are sat stage left front. Um next over as you're going from left to right would be the um rich folk, rich white people. Um you get the vibe. I can't remember it exactly, but I believe the old it's an old man and an old woman. The old man is, I think some sort of like he is a like a representative, like a state representative or a senator or some high ranking businessman. It, it's it's just got he's got that vibe rich, white, Republican, man and woman. The wife, the rich man, and the rich man's wife. The wife is sort of like there, the rich man is kind of distracted and unconcerned with the goings on, he's bored and just distant. Um, moving over from there and almost the middle kind of literally sat in front of the entrance to the kitchen behind them. The The kitchen entrance is the kitchen itself is very open, but there is a small, maybe like five or six foot wide um, just opening that goes and it's a, a clean transition into there. Think like a gigantic uh, lowercase T with the bottom uh, descender cut in half. That's about the shape of it. Um, they are sat almost right in front of that, and this is a reviewer, a female um, food reviewer. She is an effete, liberal, white, upper-class, Manhattanite-type lady. She speaks in flowerly, flowery, overly judgmental ways about every little tiny thing. Every uh, word out of her mouth is an observation. She is non-conversational. She does not receive Anything, things do not come into her. All right, she just uh, speaks about them mostly. Like that—that's how that's how her character is her vibe. Um, Her partner at her seat is some guy from her magazine who is potentially her editor or her assistant, but I think he's her editor from the magazine. And he is quite literally a simp. He is the simp. He is a simpering hand-wringing uh stoolie who um just does yes man shit to everything she does she's clearly like the big deal at their little publication whatever it is it doesn't matter um and uh but that's their relationship right so she says something he agrees he says something she disagrees and he re-agrees with whatever the fuck she just said that's that's them Moving further to the right, at the penultimate table is a uh, set of three. I guess you would say like uh, they're like venture capitalist, Bitcoin finance bros. So I would just call them the finance bros. Individually, their characters have no value. Um, they are literally just a a, tri, a tritet of, of 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 dickheads, right? Rich, spoiled, um, very very quick for a name drop, very quick to remind somebody how wealthy they are faux uh faux politeness faux deference you know oh hey you know if it's not gonna be too big but uh, let me know you know I, I they've got that kind of tone and then the final to the final uh seat on the very right is a washed up actor played by john leguizamo who's great in this role uh by which i mean he's perfectly sufficient <laughs> it's kind of wonderful because he is the one of the few people who is a notable actor outside of the regular cast. And I mean long time notable, obviously. John Leguizamo's been in this for a very long time. And um, I'll get into that in a bit, why it's funny to have him in this movie at all. And then his date, who is just his assistant. So it's the actor and his assistant, right? Every table has one individual that was brought there intentionally, and then they're plus one. So in the case of the with the exception, the notable exception of the finance bros, who sort of just showed up together technically, although uh, we find out later that they're the plus three of an other plus one who arrived before the entirety of the events of the, uh, of the show. But that's, that's a little bit beside it. So, um, at each one, it's the, uh, the Republican man, the, uh, washed up actor Tyler, the douchebag, and the reviewer are, are the individuals that brought them to themselves, like to their specific tables. And then, so that is the, that is the front of house cast, right? And the cast is kind of broken up into three sections. It's those three, but it's those tables, right? are our, are, our are, are diners. There's the middle cast, which are our antagonistic forces, so to say. And that is Ray refines as the chef who is not immediately introduced. He comes in, you know, about 20, 30 minutes into the movie, um, even after the first uh, preliminary course, the amuse-bouche is served. And I'll get to the courses in a bit because that's going to be the largesse of our discussions when it comes to this film. So the chef pops in after a bit. Right. And he is, of course, the the the, the centerpiece of the film, of the movie or of, of the film, of the of the trailers for the film. Um, and of the kitchen itself uh, he is always shot very much in center or being looked up at like uh like a like a fucking traveling god because everybody's always sitting down so there's a lot of upward angles at him distant shots even um are, are they feel close and tight you know on him he he's very you can see the like it's very – they've got a very every frame of painting with this this film. It's, it's, it's very clean, very direct, not too fancy with the camera work but, but, but wonderful. But the chef and his um, immediate underlings, the the sous chef, the maître d' um, and uh, I think she is also a sous chef, a secondary sous chef. I cannot remember but we'll talk about her later. She sort of shows up and then, and then kind of doesn't return very much. Um, but most importantly, it, it's him and the immediately high-ranking staff—the only ones that have speaking lines, so to say—and um, then behind him, that's the second chunk. And then behind him is the staff, the actual staff of the restaurant. They're mostly behind him, the kitchen cooks and stuff. And then there are additional busboys, uh, waiter, waiters, uh, wine pouring fellas, you know, sommelier. There you go uh sommelier traveling around and stuff, and they're all dressed in blue. Their front of house, um, back of house is white. But in general, the staff performs in kind of just a wonderful way. And I very much feel like this is uh, a direct thing. They perform as a chorus. And I'm not talking about um, a chorus that you might be used to as a uh, English-speaking person that has watched uh, musicals where or or been to church, where in the chorus is a bunch of people that are singing together. Uh, I'm using chorus in relative terms to, uh, ancient Greek theater, uh, which this is very, this has very ancient Greek theater vibes, although the chorus isn't quite as active, but I feel like that would be intentional back then. I digress. The chorus, um, is a group of identical beings that are all clumped together and they provide a sort of, um, action moving narration and discussion and, and they talk about what's going on. Right. And usually like in big uplifted voices, there's not a lot of, you know, um, there's not this individual or that individual. So when you get back in the time, and this is specifically talking about like Aristophanes, the wasps, the clouds, the trees, whatever the fuck else. Um, um, there would be the regular action. Usually there is some sort of uh, senator-y type person, high-ranking person, and the, 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 the non-as-high-ranking people that he interacts with. And so the um, chorus will opine on that and sort of they stand in for who the the viewers should be. Kind of to a degree. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm simplifying a great deal, but you do see this aspect in this. And one of the most important things they do is move the entire thing from scene to scene, to scene, to scene, to scene. That is what the chorus does. In this case, the chorus does not speak openly. Um, They do not talk to you directly, but uh, with words, but they do uh, communicate with the audience via the menu. Okay. And Just like getting all this set up in preparation for talking about the deeper aspects of this. I find the entirety of this writing and directing, mise-en-scene, set up, blocking, a lot of this shit, it seems, it doesn't even seem, I believe 100% it is strictly intentional. And when we get deeper into this, there is a joke that is set up at the beginning that you will only get because you are the kind of person the joke is making fun of at the very end. And like, it is, it's fire. So stick with me. I, I'm going to teach you some shit. But in this case, they are, they they do serve as a chorus. And also, to a degree, uh, a, a reflection of an audience, kind of like inversive. So they, they set up perfectly behind us. So we are watching the, uh, w- all of our attention goes up to the chef kind of triangularly right from the sides of the audience up to the chef and and then back to them you can always kind of see them but you don't pay attention to them inversively the chef would be seeing all of the uh people and then the individuals that he's speaking with and when we would be behind them so you can kind of see that reflection in the thing and that's just uh, I, I appreciate it so Ultimately, what I'm saying uh, with that is you are, as a viewer, supposed to be, um, statistically speaking, seeing yourself um, in, in as one of the workers in this, which is, it's not – it's easy for me to do, especially because I have a background in um, restaurants and uh, working – restaurants, working around food, in food. Um, I grew up – my dad is a cook, um, and he worked at uh, – I mean, serious kitchens like hotel kitchens, uh, in downtown Cincinnati. He worked at the Hyatt Regency. He worked at the Masonette. So some of my oldest memories are going inside walking for walk-in fridges and stuff and like hanging out with these kind of people. Now this, um, this is a full on like three Michelin star type, uh, setup. So that's why it's so hardcore. You might, sort of, um, recognize the, the vibe of it from other things that you've seen, but, um, this is called, uh, I can't remember, but it's basically military style, uh, kitchen, right. Platoon style or something. So you have, um, a strict breakdown in hierarchy and it is, um, supposed to be faux militaristic. That's to keep the kitchen organized. And it's not necessarily a bad thing when it's implemented in real life. As a matter of fact, any kitchen where there's any sharps being used, I would like As soon as you get to that point, I would say organize your kitchen like that, Um, especially if you're having any sit-down service. It it needs to be um, part of the French gendarme, I think it's called. I can't remember exactly, but basically the way that this breaks down is um, you start with the chef. If you have a chef owner, there can be like a sort of variation, but the night um, work starts with the chef and then breaks down into two directions, front of house, back of house. Front of house, you have uh, the maitre d' who is the chef's right hand in the front of the house. The maitre d' is what you would consider a hostess, right? Um, And underneath the maitre d', you have all of the maitre d''s immediate staff. You have um, busboys to a degree. depends on how big the restaurant is. Busboys kind of have a – they're kind of mixed between front of house and back of house use. They're like the the, the U shape at the very bottom. Um, But you do have waiters, waitresses, uh, sommeliers, And then there's like a million other tiny little miniature things. I won't get into them because they're not even in this, but you might have them certain extremely fancy restaurants. They'll have people that like, um, are sommeliers, but like for cigars and they'll have people that come out and they do, um, like little things. They have weird little, they do stuff. Like they'll carve like a fucking ice sculpture in front of you or some shit. And there's like a word for that. But basically they move stuff on and off of your table, but they're not waiters and they're not bus boys. And there's like dessert cart people. It's it's a thing. All right. But don't worry about it. They're not too much into this. But uh, our maitre d' in this is played by a woman named, I believe, Hung Chow. And she's fucking great in the role. She's amazing, but she's the maitre d'. So that's all you need to know her as. Um, On the back of the house, you have the sous chef who is the, uh, the assistant chef. And then you might have one or two sous chefs. And, and then sometimes the names specifically of them can vary. You may not have a sous chef. And so your um, – the head of your grill, your line cook would be like the, the head of it or whatever. And then beneath them, beneath the sous chef or sous chefs, it should be the the sous chef, the executive chef, whatever the hell, um, you have uh, multiple stations, right? And then those kind of spread out. And so you'll have your your grills, your grill people you'll have your uh, chef de partie who puts everything together you'll have your saucier who makes sauces and then if you're in a really really fancy restaurant you'll have your sauce, your 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 uh, saucier de pisque or pesca i can't remember how to say fucking fish in french but your your saucier for fish sauces, your saucier for beef sauce, your saucier for pork sauce, your saucier for vegetable, and then if you have that many things, you'll have a station that's literally the fish station, the beef station, the chicken station, the pork station, the the this, the that, and then all of those have like a little they break out and then they form back up. They have a specific. They might have their own chef de partie or whatever that oversees them in a small way. They all talk up to the. Sous chef who is bouncing around, going from thing to thing, checking, reaching over people's shoulders, testing stuff, tasting it, and making sure that the chef, that any problems are basically discovered before the chef arrives. Because the chef is not really going to do work on the night in a big kitchen like this. The chef shouldn't have to do anything except for fill in here or there and then if there are special guests or there is a specific dish for the chef to do um that is his like dish he will work on it. So if you like that and that that's being served by the chef, which is extremely like if you go to a big fancy restaurant that's like that's the money thing. The chef himself cooked this. If you've ever heard that before, that's why that's valuable. Now, if it's a small restaurant where they're still doing um the the garrison style or whatever it is, then Um, the chef might probably be cooking, right? But if we're talking about a large restaurant for scale, this restaurant is, um, they have too many staff. They have, I think if I counted, I would say they have about double the staff that they, as they do, um, individual diners, which is usually kind of inversive. You know, that's a good way to lose money. You definitely want more people spending money in your restaurant than you want to have people that you're paying to work there. Um, but I, it kind of works in Michelin style because you are these Michelin. I'm, I'm saying Michelin. It's like these like award winning restaurants. Um, you call like a, a restaurant like a Michelin restaurant, even if they don't have a star, because they're trying to get one. Uh, there might be other words for it, basically in the in the, the in the service industry now. But basically, it's like, do you want to work? Like, it's a it's a restaurant you do not want to work in unless like your whole life is about this cooking shit, because that's all they're trying to do is win awards and become notorious and it will benefit basically no one in there except for the main chef. Uh The other people it's, it's good to have that credit on you, but like it's really great for him. But the amount of return you get on your investment for everybody else in that kitchen is pretty nil. So you have to kind of be lucky to uh, get something off of it. And they, they work extra hard. The kitchens are always extra clean. Their clothes are always extra put together and it just, it, they go super, super de duper duper fucking hard. And yeah, basically, I think I think that's enough about uh, kitchens. It, 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 it's it's a good kitchen thing. So, um, yeah, they're back there. And uh, yeah, that's the setup. So um, that should be that should be fine to describe this. Uh, the story begins, like I said, everybody gets off the boat. They go on a tour of the island. They go and they sit down. And so we begin with the first item on the menu. I'm sorry to have uh, literally kept you waiting for, uh, for the first bite to eat here. But I I did feel like uh, I want to explain all this stuff because I'm going to get into it, folks. This is, this is a long talker. Um, we start with the amuse bouche, which is, uh, basically like, I think it's like a, I think it's a mouth amuser or a tongue amuser, but basically, um, it's like an appetizer. But if you said you wanted an appetizer or like you called an amuse bouche, an appetizer at like a fancy fucking restaurant, they would all get absolutely ass blasted at you only if they're French. the The main difference is that an amuse bouche is supposed to sort of set the tone for the night and be uh, give you kind of like a description of the overall flavor profile for this uh, for this seven course meal, right? Um, whereas a, a typical like an American appetizer, an app, is like a it's like a variation on tapas which are small shareables, some shareable plates and stuff. And that's basically to, uh, good, good appetizers. Good tapas are usually either made from stuff that already exists in the kitchen, just on a small scale. So when you get like a slider, you know, pulled pork, any sort of that thing. And it doesn't take them a lot to put it together, but they can throw it together real quick and then bring it out. And the table can snack on that while they're waiting for the food. That's the point of an appetizer, right? um, in a in a, in super big service, uh thing that they missed here, I don't I don't think that they had an aperitif. They had an apertif they had a wine that went with the amuse bouche, but I don't think they really had an aperitif, which is a drink that's supposed to go with your, your whole thing. You're supposed to have an aperitif after the amuse bouche that gets you ready to eat the food. So anyway, the amuse bouche in this case is a, is always very small, minuscule. Um usually it is the thing that people make fun of the most is something that's the size of an amuse bouche. When you have one of those fancy eating, uh, scenes in a comedy movie, which it includes even in this one, uh, people are usually, this is the one that's the most shocking because there's almost nothing to it. Uh, in the case of the menu, the amuse bouche is charred lace and cucumber, uh, melon ball things. These little melon balls, Come up a lot, right? They—I can't remember exactly what they are, but they're made probably with the Paco Jet, which we will get into later. We will talk about the Paco Jet so much you're going to get upset with me about it. But, um, this is our first real symbolic dish. Okay, no, not not even a spoiler. If you know anything about movies, people are going to die on this this island. But what the Amuse Bouche is trying to tell you is that uh, there's charred lace. Lace is obviously. Expensive, fancy, frilly. So burnt we are saying burnt things surrounding the charred lace is actually uh set around the melon balls. Um and and our little balls are inside. And I believe if you actually counted them, I, I can't remember, but let me let me double check. I'm gonna count these real quick. And if it's the same amount as they have guests, that is fucking hilarious. So let's see. Okay, so yeah, the amuse-bouche is cucumber, melon, sorry, milk, snow, and chard lace. So milk, snow is just like frozen snow, I believe. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. Uh, let's see, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So I think that's 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. That's not quite enough. so it's not it's not one for every single person but um yeah the so it just to describe this visually for you um this thing this entire thing is maybe the size if you make a little circle with your fingers there's a 16 extremely extremely tiny little uh cucumber melon ball things right around that is a uh, slightly larger piece of lace charred so that it, it comes up in a big circle around it with uh, little bits of milk snow put on there, I don't know if this charred lace is actually an edible thing, but just spoken, you can kind of get what they're getting at, right? And this is very, very small. And these cucumber melon balls come back, like I said, a number of times in this film. Not necessarily even uh, in an important way, but they are—they're a part of every dish in a way that's kind of like comedic to me, and. Once we get a little bit deeper into this, you can see that there is some actual, like, piss-taking happening relative to the menus that's in excess of what the chef himself is already doing. So um, after this, after the muse bouche happens, right, the the chef is not there yet. The chef finally gets introduced to everybody. He comes in. um, Everyone kind of sets stuff up. Uh, You get to see the first minor interactions between everybody and their guests. It's all pretty small. There's a lot of whispering at the table. And so this um, is repeated. This cycle is repeated again and again throughout the movie. There is a dish is presented. Attention is brought to the front of the kitchen. A dish is presented, brought out from the kitchen. And from there, uh, the discussion and the focus goes from the chef back onto the individual um, eaters. And uh, this is the first one. This is the first and I think the only one without him there. So we we all start talking. You kind of get a little bit of a background on everybody. Uh, John Leguizamo's character. And some of this is going to be out of order, but it's kind of un. It, it, it's kind of unconsequential uh, relative to the plot stuff. When little tiny, tiny things are revealed, it's all very chaotic. Um, there is a, a through line of extreme messiness and farcical uh, actions happening uh, throughout the entirety of this. The tech bros, they talk about how they're, they're they're giggling amongst each other. They're they're pretty close to the chest. The reviewer starts off hot, uh just absolutely impugning things right away. Um and even even she has a criticism for him that is just it's like it's aimed at me too. Uh, when I discuss the movie itself, and it's a, she says it insists it insists upon itself, it insists upon itself. Um, that might not be at this point, but it is later, but uh, her 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 thing there's a lot of points in this movie where even your impression of what's going on isn't just mirrored by the people but um explained back to you where you're like uh, in, in in odd ways and and I really, really enjoy it also during the amused booth section, my bad, uh, we have the setup for the joke later, so before the chef gets there, the uh, individuals in the seats and stuff, if they want to, they can get up and walk around the kitchen and sort of watch people work, which is the worst shit you'll have ever heard of in your life. I mean, as far as um me getting like a, a, a toe cut off, you know, by somebody or having to talk to some fucking asshole while I'm working in a kitchen and have been working in the kitchen for like four hours, I will take the fucking toe. Get um uh, it's gone um but in in this scene we are introduced to uh sous chef Jeremy and like i said before he's the sous chef um and he has an interaction with Tyler that becomes extremely critical to like the best b plot in the entire fucking the entire show um and it's basically he comes up and Tyler is irritating chef Jeremy who is very distracted and uh working his ass off and seems very very worried Um, you know, which it's a high pressure environment and that's, that's not surprising. And he says, Oh, Hey, is that a Paco jet? And, um, sous chef Jeremy says, yeah, yeah, it is. I will get into what a Paco jet is later, but you can just leave it there. Suffice to say, I had to look it up. And if you didn't have to look it up, I'm stunned by whatever providence brought you to knowing what the fuck a Paco jet is. Uh, it definitely isn't the thing that I originally thought. I thought it was going to be some sort of a like frost mister type thing, but I digress. I'll get back to it. Just remember. Uh, and this is a setup for one of the best fucking like in joke jokes. I don't even know what to call it. Just the best payoffs for anything I've seen in a movie recently. Um, and it is not just blink and you'll miss it. It is stare at it. And you won't know what the fuck you're looking at unless you know extremely specific bits of information about stuff regarding kids. It's literally jokes only for people that are operating at that level in the culinary industry, which I have infinite respect for. And, and we'll get into it. But, um, yeah, Tyler, he goes up there. He's very awkward. And he sits back down. Tyler, of course, the douchebag is a massive foodie, which I don't know if I've mentioned yet. But that's his whole thing. He's a foodie. He's a fanboy. Um, he's that guy. He's that dude that you've met that is in his thirties and has like a guitar that he sort of kind of plays. Um, and then talks incessantly about John Mayer. John Mayer is the best guitarist ever. Have you heard John Mayer? He will like corner a 22 year old girl in a bar and like, instead of doing just the decent thing and like sexually harassing her so she can just mace him and sprint out the door away from him. He just uh, uh hounds her with information about topics she doesn't give a fuck about uh until until she she melts and um flows out of her body as a gelatinous mass and and and, and, and goes down the fucking center drain behind the bar <laughs> he's that guy all right very irritating to the people that the people that don't want to hear about his shit, that don't share his passion, and the people that do share his passion are equally irritated by him. Nobody fucking likes Tyler. Um, and we do find out shortly after they get off the boat that um, Tyler's ex-girlfriend was the person he was supposed to bring, but he brought our protagonist, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, instead. He had to bring her as a last-minute substitution, which the Mater d' is not happy about. But we are introduced after the amuse-bouche to the chef who introduces himself and gives his first of many speeches for the night. Um, most of them, there's probably like some good like hidden meaning type stuff in a general sense, but it's pro- it's, it's mostly surface level, so I, it didn't really stick out necessarily. Um, and I think that's also to a degree intentional. The chef is a pompous dickhead, okay? And he's supposed to be presented in this... um in this air of, of mystique and danger and intensity that is really like in a metatextual way to the narrative reinforced by things like the trailer and by stuff that you've seen before. Um, before I even get into him as a character, uh, the, the, this quick diversion needs to happen. If you saw the trailer to this, like I did, uh, you may have been thoroughly deceived By one scene of people running away into the woods and then just the presence of Ray Fiennes, who has a big scary skull head, uh, in the movie at all as a major chef. And so I thought, and you may have thought as well, that this was going to be another iteration of The Most Dangerous Game. What the fuck is that, you may ask, or, or you do already know. The Most Dangerous Game is an ancient short story. I will actually look it up. The Most Dangerous Game. Uh, Yes. Okay. So it is a short story by Richard O'Connell originally published January 19th, 1924. And so, um, this story has been redone a thousand million billion times. Um, especially, especially in like cartoon action shows and, uh, you know, stuff. So it is basically a guy is invited to an Island, um, and he finds out shortly after that the, the, the notorious big game hunter type dude that he invited him there has invited him and potentially other people. I'm, I'm going to give the, the broadest synopsis that maybe will include the other versions you've seen. Um, his, his desire after having hunted all of the greatest predators in the world is to now hunt the most dangerous game man. And so he will, is going to release you into the woods unarmed and then chase you down and, and hunt you uh, for sport, which is you know you you've seen it before, okay. And even though that move that show came out in or that book came out in 1912, and I have I've read that short story as part of a short story collection when I was very young, um, those stories go back even further to uh, things that really really did happen, uh, especially in America. Slaves would be released and hunted by uh, slave masters. Um, in 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 the southern colonies, uh, southern and northern area, you know, anybody that had a slave, there is a very real possibility of going and hunting them down, not just for sport, but just in a general sense. So the most dangerous game, as a narrative, has a very powerful, uh, just cultural relativity to America, where you start to sense it sometimes, even though it doesn't happen. As a, the the jump to that, why it's fucking hilarious that John Leguizamo is in this movie. Is John Leguizamo in the 1990s and this has this is fucking on purpose. this is fucking on purpose. John Leguizamo in the 1990s was in one of the worst movies ever made called the Pest. all right it has and i I do not I will I will fight you on this the worst intro to a, a major studio production movie you'll have ever seen. it's John Leguizamo. Dancing in the shower and getting ready for the day in the most obnoxious way. He is clearly to a degree uncomfortable with like how much of his body they're even showing. Because it's supposed to be like a a comedy, but it's like a shower scene right away with him walking on sunshine or some some fucking song like that, right? And for no reason. While he's doing this, there are fart machine noises constantly. So he's like, oh, and it is the most brainless dog shit fucking stuff I- I've ever seen. I will remember it because I loved that movie when I was a kid because, A, I was dumb as fuck and like six years old. And so fart noises were actually soup du jour, bitch. But also I had read that short story and I was like, oh, wow. They turned, this is the first movie adaptation I have ever seen where the adaptation is uh, something I've seen after I read the book, you know. They hadn't done the Grinch yet, so it wasn't, the Grinch wasn't every Babby's first adaptation. Um, so that movie is terrible, and I believe it almost tanked John Leguizamo's career at the time. It was definitely fucking not a bright spot for him, as I, as I believe I recall. There's no, no one's going to be like, Hey, you should get more work. Um, I think after that he was, um, in thankfully in Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann film, which was, he was ma- like magnificent. And it Tibble, he was, he's Tibble, the Prince of cats, uh, a character obviously close to my own heart. And like most people's, um, I kind of like guys awakening male and female alike because he's fucking money, dude, sleeveless shirt big fucking Mary slicked back hair, Baz Luhrmann lighting. Uh, Very, very fun. And then he was uh, the violator in spawn. And I think that let him just kind of fucking dig his claws in and not go anywhere. Um, John Leguizamo is by no means uh, a washed up actor, although he is very, he has a very big name despite the mostly small roles he takes in like uh, procedural television shows and stuff. But in this show, which Kind of baits you, as <laughs> even in the trailer, they're they're being deceptive to you, even in the trailer, to get you to come to the movie by making you think it's going to be what you know. Hey, have you? Of course, we've seen it before, but have we seen it with John Leguizamo? Yes, we have, and I know what you mean. That's a terrible. That's a terrible joke, breaks But um, it, it, it's it's extra funny because in this, he's a washed-up actor. And there's multiple allusions brought up to a terrible movie he was in in the 90s that he barely remembers called Dr. Uh, feel Good, right? Um, those kind of shitty, farcical, dog shit films, just to keep bringing up farcical uh, because that's the word of the day for this entire movie. Um, they were called Feel Good back in the day. It's a feel good film for the whole family. <laughs> so I, I don't know that that might be pushing it a little bit on the metaphor for me, but that they bring up a dog shit movie. He was in back in the like nineties era. Um, and he was in the pest, which was a dog shit movie from that era. That was about the most dangerous game, which they very, very, very much allude to. And to a degree actually do farcically re re uh, um, retell and, in later events. It, it's just, it's, it's, Absolutely intentional, I fucking see you. you're not getting that past me and its it's amazing, so um we have of course the uh the chef, and um i I guess I'll get back into his character he is he's a dildo, the chef is a dickhead, right, but he is like i said um he he's layered with these um layers, so to say of mystique and prestige and uh, distance and he has a very powerful air of authority of him on this island even though as we come to find out um basically every single person that's in this room had some sort of deleterious effect on him or or literally has the ability to lord things over him um and so he is actually quite a fragile person Uh, As we, as we'll come to find out, but he introduces himself and he gives the first of his many dumb fucking speeches. They're great. They're also really, it's just, uh, it's Babby's first speech. And so it's Ray Fines delivering it. But when you break down the real contents of the speech, it's all, all kinds of literal nothing burgers. Um, but at the beginning he says, you are here. You'll get salt, fat, protein, sugar whatever fucking all all these things starch and like describes the 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 constituent ingredients of any meal and you know these things will be combined burned whatever blah 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 blah, blah, and, and presented to you tonight but i implore you do not eat uh taste yeah do not eat taste do not chew um like savor and 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 so he does that whole that whole thing which is kind of it's perfect and it definitely yet again it has that play vibe to it that entire preamble he does functionally too late into the film but as an as a uh as basically a prelude to his own play, his own farce as he's introducing everybody, you know, at the beginning you have your amuse-bouche. He is now beginning the fucking play with a, a, with a soliloquy. He's literally doing a fucking soliloquy to his audience. And, you know, and it's basically a a foodie version of Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, if we, if we shades do the offend, you know, remember the night's going to end or some shit like that. But it's basically, it's literally that. So this is the beginning of his own farce. And I will keep saying the word farce and you'll fucking hate me for it. But I swear to God, this shit is literary money. This is, this shit is me being fucked. This is a massage. This is a delicious meal. I loved it. I loved it. I love the taste of it. I love going back to it. And now I'm talking to you guys about it. But he gives his first big fucking speech and presents The first course of the night. Uh the island, right? This is a scallop, a single scallop, I believe. Uh maybe some of the plates have more than one, but I believe it's just a single scallop. I'm going to double double check again. I took a screenshot of every single meal. I'm I'm very dedicated to this one, but not dedicated enough to be actually prepared for things. But it's called the island, and so this thing is served on a fucking rock, like literally rocks from the seashore of the island are brought in and it's put on there. And they, they, they do a thing called plating, which if you're not familiar with high level restaurant tourism um, or even just moderate level is just the way that food is arranged on a plate. We can act, which actually is a very big deal, even if you don't expect it. If I tell if I say right now, hamburger and fries, cheeseburger and fries. All right. You just imagined, and I will tell you right now, a plate, maybe about as big as both of your hands can reach um, in a general sense, and a cheeseburger on the left, and then a big pile of fries on the right. Or if you're more of a fast food person and you've never seen anything plated, uh, a bag with a cheeseburger in it and some fries, maybe just the the shh, shh, shh. But if you say a cheeseburger and fries, generally, you'll think of that. Big burger, pile of fries, maybe like a little bit of ketchup or something. And that's because that's been hammered home. If I say a balanced breakfast to you and you were born between 1970 and 1990, um, you just imagined for no real reason, a bowl of cereal a toast with a pat of butter on it and a fucking orange, right? Maybe like an egg. It's part of a balanced breakfast. And like that just popped up into your fucking head. I could be completely wrong about all of these and I'm not, I'm, I'm not being predictive at all. Um, but those things are called plating. And, uh, the way that stuff is arranged on the plate in a small way at small restaurants, you should always do it because just it, it, people's eyes are a part of the meal. So, you know, if you want proof of this, just imagine me serving you a burger by setting it on like a school book, right? Just a school book. And it's soaking into like the top of this, this textbook and like all the grease is kind of like there. And you're like, what, what's going on? And I hand you this grease soaked book. You're like, that's fucking disgusting. Now imagine it with a white plate instead. Now imagine it with like a black plate instead or a green plate. That's a fucking weird choice, right? Like dark forest green. Why is this burger on this green ass plate? Those are all decisions that are actually like made by people to make the food, more appealing. If you go eat sushi, sushi restaurants are always about fucking plating. Um, mostly because it makes paying that much for such little fish, uh, a little bit more justifiable, you know, in the heart, uh, but I digress. So um, this is high-level plating, um, experimental grade, where it's not just a plate. It's a fucking whole display, okay? And uh, when I was a kid, my dad had to do these sort of things with um, dessert. I don't know how to say Dessert sculptures. That was one of his specialties. And he would make – and, you know, he's not like a super artistic guy that, like, imagine these. Like, once you know how they're made, you can just repeat the pattern over and over and over again, which you have to do. And so, like one of the things that my dad had to do when he was young, uh, a guy working at the lower levels of, of of cooking and stuff, was make candy sculptures. And so you have to heat up like sugar, and you whip it up, and then you da 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 da, and like make little strings, and then blow on them, and they cool off. And he would make these tall, uh, wiry, you know, modern art looking things. Make fucking seventy five of them because you had seventy five tables that night. And uh, you had to do them all between specifically, you know, 4.25 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, and, and it took takes like a literal hour to do them all so you can't mess up because they have to have cooled down enough that they won't hurt anybody or bend when you put them on the table. But also you can't put them out too soon because they'll start attracting flies. And even if no matter what you can do, like you can't you can't let the flies get in there because like they'll they'll try to do it. And stupid stuff like that. But um, in this case, it's a fucking rock, a plate with a big fucking rock the size of like almost the size of your goddamn head on it. Um, (laughs) There's a single scallop on top of it uh, and various plants from the island scattered all around all all around it. It's very, very pretty looking. And then it's covered in barely frozen, filtered seawater to flavor the dish as it melts, as he said, which is like it's very fancy, right? Okay, so this is a piss take. This whole dish is a piss take. So it seems fancy, right? This is the, and he gives this whole big speech. Okay, yeah. They brought it, they went and got a fucking rock from the beach, picked some fucking plants from outside, and one scallop from the beach maybe too, because the scallop is supposed to be coming from the, the beach, I believe. He says those are those same scallops, but I can't, I can't really remember. And it's a raw fucking scallop with salt on it. So he just brought you a single scallop with salt on it and some fucking herbs from around it. But they they dress it up. It's piss. It's a piss take. (laughs) Barely frozen, filtered seawater. So it's salt water. It's a salt water, salt water glaze, you know, as as it melts, which it's going to do. And so it's just it's absolute bullshit. It's a bullshit meal. It's so it's a fucking farce. Of a first course it is hilarious it is uncooked food it's a raw plate of shit they gathered from outside literally the funniest fucking thing then you know it that's not to say that it wouldn't be necessarily good tasting but it's the first course and it is a fucking piss take and nobody notices um i believe this is when the woman says it insists on itself like this menu insists on itself or some shit like that no no that's actually after the bread plate which is even worse um but everybody is kind of like, oh, hey, that's great! Like, oh, this is fucking, this is so cool! This is great! This is, this is pretty funny. Um, and so, like, if you don't know anything about food, you might be like, this was worth it, and it is not. That is like literally two whole dollars, maybe three whole dollars, worth of of vegetation and shit, minus the labor of going and collecting it. Which <laughs> he's got slave labor on the island, and in, in in the uh, as his his chefs are, are just slaves his slaves, basically. Um, they, they, they do all the farming. In addition to just working in a kitchen for fucking 10 hours a day, they do all the farming and, uh, slaughtering and raising of livestock on, on, the Island, apparently too. the fishing, which is absolutely fucking insane. But, um, all, all of, all of the people, the only one that doesn't enjoy it or even really try to eat it is, uh, Anya Taylor Joy's character, the protagonist. She's like, wow, that is fucking unappealing. I just don't, I'm not really in for, I don't like scallops. <laughs> Tyler, of course, is like her perfect opposite. They're a chiral pair, uh, if you know what that means. It's kind of like, see how your hands touch? And they're symmetrical when you look at them when they're open. But if you turn them, they can't lay over top of each other. They only ever work like two sides of a book. That's a chiral pair. So they go together, but they are also permanently functionally separate. They cannot replace each other. And that's kind of their disposition. Tyler is always more, 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 more. I love the chef. I want more of this. I want more of this. And gets more intensive over that uh, throughout the course of the the movie. Whereas Annie Teller Joy is like less, 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 and less. Which kind of makes sense just coming from the outside. But um, I digress. From the first course, which is just fun. It's fucking hilarious. It's a piss take. It's a piss take of a dish. If you didn't get that he's fucking pissing on you, he brings in plate two, the second, the second course. Um the second course is prefaced by a speech about common men uh getting their daily bread, right? The Hawthorne is apparently, so they say, known for their bread, which makes no fucking sense at all. You Okay, so it's if they if the Hawthorne is known for their bread, okay? But all of the places that you've seen are just uh veg and meat so far. The kitchen is set up as a as a kitchen kitchen, like a, a basic standard um, multi-station kitchen bread is its own thing. There is cooking and then there is baking and anybody that works in a real kitchen will say that is correct. If they say we make everything from scratch here, but the bread that is very, very common because bread is its own thing entire fucking thing. I shit you not. Bread is a whole day's work. In addition to whatever the fuck you're cooking, you have to raise it. You have to, you have to ferment the yeast. You have to, to prove the dough. If you go into a real bakery, any bread bakery, they will have a size, a a whole side of it, a giant chunk full of big ass plastic tubs of proving dough, you know, and depending on what they're kind of doing, maybe they'll be out on a, on a sheet or, or whatever. But these will all be going. And if you have, if they're known for their bread, they're going to have multiple varieties of bread. I don't think they're just making fucking ciabatta every goddamn day. So they're going to have some sourdough going. They're going to have maybe some pumpernickel going, you know, dark breads, light breads, uh, leavened, unleavened, unleavened. Keep that in mind. And and you have to have space just for all of that. And in addition to that, if you are a real fucking, if you're baking bread for shit loads of people, you're going to need a baker's oven independently of all of this stuff. Right. Um, but I mean, I guess maybe because it's so small, they can get away with cooking. I don't know if you're making loaves of bread, you need one loaf per table minimum, right? Plus two. So you always want to have, and your extras, they you got to feed the people. I'm assuming they're going to be eating at some point too. all of these cooks. And none of them look like gaunt or anything. So you're going to be able to, you're going to have to cook a minimum of 20 ish loaves of bread per day like that is all of a standard oven and like then some like minimum minimum. And then like, why would you be doing that? And if you're going to be doing bread plates, one would assume you're not just serving the singular piece of bread. As they get into the bread plate, you're going to have like maybe a few varieties. If you're known for your bread, no, everybody, you just get one heirloom grain fucking uh, pretzel. I don't know what the fuck. And then, then that's it. You would, you would assume they're going to give you like a variety of things to try, but maybe, maybe not. But it just it, – the place is not set up. It is not set up for baking. Uh, I don't know how to say that any better. It's not that you couldn't, but it just isn't. They don't have the, like, prep table space to be doing dough. They don't have a stand mixer. Like, that is the biggest – that's a tell. That is a fucking tell. If you don't have – if you do not have a fucking – 20 gallon whatever 10 15 20 gallon uh floor stand mixer like you're not making you're not making dough and pastries and shit in that fucking house maybe some petty fours but like that is that that you need that fucking gigantic thing and i think that that's intentional um i i, I wouldn't be surprised maybe they do make it in a different place but i and I'm, I'm, i might be talking a lot of shit but you even see into some of their back rooms behind it And they have like uh, a a dry aging cabinet for like T-bone steaks and stuff. And they have all those steaks set up, but there is no bread area. There is no space for bread in this place, which I think may be also intentional. Like they don't even have a fucking bread cabinet. Like there's no, there's nowhere where bread was stored secretly otherwise. And there's no reason to not have an area for it in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Um, Okay. I digress. But he gives this whole big speech about how um, bread is the, the dish of the common man, which is true. If you don't know anything about bread, and this is why I'm all fucking excited about it, um, bread is the reason we have society uh, full stop, full stop. There would not be human society. There would not be uh, spoken language. There would not be commerce. There would not be um, buildings. There would not be roads. There would not be cooking um, of any higher caliber uh, if, if there would not be alcohol. If we did not have bread first, um, we started growing shit as like fucking monkey people, whatever, three, 30, 40,000 years ago. Cool. And that's the beginning of agriculture. But as agriculture um, hit its natural limit. You know, so obviously you, want, you don't want to be hunting and gathering all the time. People that think that you can live off hunting and gathering are fucking dumb. Okay. The reason they're still hunter-gatherer societies today is because they can't evolve because they're still hunting and gathering. They literally don't have the time to do better, more pertinent shit. Like fucking get a Pornhub account and save up for a Bentley. Real, real fucking high-level first world shit. Um, the The natural end of the growing cycle is harvest, right? And once you've harvested shit, it just starts fucking rotting. Um, seeds are the hardiest thing, but the best thing about all kinds of seed, basically every, almost every type of seed, if it's dried and separated the right way, it can get pulverized into flour. Once you have flour, flour lasts longer than the seeds because of the way that it packs in and it can be stored different ways. But once you have the flour, The flour can be, have salt added to it to preserve it even more, or you can make bread with it. The first thing, first kind of bread that you can make is a very dehydrated, um, unleavened bread. You know what I'm saying? And that like a hard tack and that will be less easy to eat uh, or less easy to go bad throughout the winter. You can have big, nice, big breads. You have your literal daily bread um, which is a thing all the way up into medieval times in the 1800s. They have, in France still, there's still a few of the the daily bread ovens. I can't remember what they're called, but basically on the side of the monastery or the church in the center of town was like a literal, a, a, an oven face, like the size of a, it was the whole wall, Right. And people would come up, and because there was a permanent fire going in, you would knead your bread off to the side, or the people would, and they would put all of these loaves in these different little slots, um, and the, the, the loaves, once they were, they were getting ready to rise, they would slowly cook and go bloop, and then they would be baked, and then you would go in and you would get your literal bread for your day's work, and that was your daily bread. That's where daily bread comes from, and there's variations of that throughout history, Okay. But bread allowed you to preserve stuff. Once you preserved stuff, you create the concept of haves and haves not. So I I have a ton of bread, but I don't have someone to dig a ditch. Okay, I'll dig a ditch for some bread. Now you've got commerce. Now you have whole areas that have this. And then people are like, well, we don't have anyone else to do bread. So I'm going to go fish over in the fishing village by the the, by this. So you guys don't have fish, but we don't have bread. Let's trade. Now you've got goddamn trade because you have preservatives You have things that can kind of keep going. Obviously, you can always fish. Fish are pretty much permanent to a degree. There's migrations, but you can always make food from the sea. But if you want to get away from the sea, you have to have stuff like bread. In addition to that, the best other way, um, the best other thing that you can do with grain is to ferment and distill it. And then you have beer or wine in some other cases. If you brew it strong, you can pour it in your water and swirl it around and now your water will be disinfected and you can shrink it and not get fucking dysentery. That's literally the modern era comes from bread. That's your, that's your history lesson. I can, can, I can literally continue this forever. The first beer recipe is from like 8,500 years ago in Egypt. And it made a very yeasty, flat beer that probably wouldn't be particularly good to drink straight. But you can mix it with stuff. Um, water, sugar, honey, fruit juice, whatever the fuck. And then party time. But, uh, I digress. So he gives this whole big story about how, you know, bread is for the common man, but you are not a common man. And then he has to look, of course, at the protagonist who is also, she's literally not a man nor one of these other people. So she's like, I, I literally don't fit any of these categories. Um, so you don't get bread. And so the second course is a bread plate, no bread, savory accompaniment, it's only, fucking lol. hilarious you're out of your mind i would i would literally leave the restaurant I, I would go away i would ask for a refund and i would flip the fucking table over um, everybody that's at this is this is the first moment of discord of real discord amongst the people in the audience the tech bros are the most pissed off because they're like oh hey yeah this is cute but uh can i get some fucking bread and this is when they start having their other minor b plot with uh the mater d who eventually sits one of them down and says you will uh you will eat less than you want and more than you deserve tonight tonight you will eat less than you want or and, and yeah and like taste more than you deserve or something along the lines which is like a very nice little first creepy line just as a quick aside um hong chao who plays the mater d is great in this, um, perfectly cast. She just has such a vibe around her. Her hair is done in this way that's not like offensive or anything, but it just has a severity to it and an inten- intensity around her face that both makes it look like, okay, this is a professional haircut, but also gives her just like this real dangerous vibe and uh, her body language and her line delivery are really perfect. Uh, She would make a good meter D I think in real life as well. Uh, And she has a way of delivering um, polite lines with uh, just a a level of threat to them. That's like kind of beyond the pale. It's really great. But um, yes, our tech bros complain. Most of the other people are like, well, that's pretty neat. You know, whatever, I guess that's goofy. The, the, and it just sort of continues. The bread plate is literally an empty plate with uh, five little holes um, in it for sauces. And they're given like a dipstick and you can just eat the sauce if you want. Um, some of them aren't even possible. The only one that I recognize is whatever that is from Italian restaurants where it's uh, olive oil, oregano, salt, and pepper all in together. That's the only one of them that I recognize. It's also one of my favorite dips for bread. If you don't know about this. Any sugar and egg-free white bread, no brioche. Brioche does not taste good with savory accompaniment. It's in, in my mind, uh, it's too soft. But um, any good white bread, if you just mix a little bit of olive oil, um, a little bit of red pepper if you want, but I, I think black pe- pepper actually kind of goes better with it, a little bit of black pepper, um, salt, and oregano and or basil. Um, if you're doing it fresh, Very, 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 very finely chopped. But I think this is one of the rare occasions where the dried herb is actually fine. You know, dip that. It won't taste like much to you. You got to mix it together a little bit with your finger. Um, And it won't taste like much to you if you taste it. But once you put it on bread, it fucking sets that shit off. Absolutely, absolutely monstrous. But um, yeah, so they eat these fucking savory accompaniments and shit. And it's, it's a piss take. It's very obvious too. But remember... That he said, you are not the common man, and you will not be getting bread tonight. Hawthorne is known for its bread. You will not be getting bread tonight. The immediate next course, and this is just, just such a fucking piss take. Um, and there is a deep sense of class unawareness as part of the chef's character. Um, he does not understand the big things he's saying, but he is delivering his bullshit so confidently and from such a position of authority that everybody's kind of going along with it, except for one character, obviously, so on the third course, we are giving yet another um another little fucking diatribe about the chef's past when he was a child, and we start f- coming to the first uh confusing um non nonsensical part of his past, and that is. Even though he's Ray Fines, who's very, very fucking British, British looking, doesn't look like an American on his best day. He does not look like an American. He looks fucking British as shit um, or at least just fucking UK vibes. And, and that's not like an insult or anything. It's just I can I, I can I can tell most of the time. I feel like other people can, too. He's just he's got that vibe to him. And also, to a degree, his accent, I think he might not be doing um an actual English accent. He might be doing a little bit American, but he doesn't sound American to me in this. He sounds, still sounds British. Um, but he talks about fucking taco night. So there is no such thing as a fucking taco night in Britain. I, 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 I deny you anything that is white people. Taco night is like a long-standing joke in America, particularly amongst Latin American people and anybody that lives in the, uh, the American Southwest, but taco night, He has he tells a story about Taco Night and we get his uh, his his sad backstory uh, or as much as he directly wants to share. That is that his dad was a drunk and came home and beat on him and beat on his mom and so one day he stabbed his dad in the leg with a pair of scissors and that sort of ended the abuse for then. By the way, his mom is in the, the entire show. She's in the entire movie. She has barely one or two speaking lines and is just steadily getting shit face drunk in the corner of the dining room the entire time. It's, <laughs> she's kind of great, but also like really not there. Um, and so we were introduced to the third course, which is chicken thigh with scissors in it. Uh, and it says it's chicken Al pastor, um, taco night, chicken Al pastor with uh tort- tortillas, laser and engra- laser engraved tortillas. Okay. Um, I can't remember the exact full name of this dish. Hold on. Let me see if I can. Oh yeah. It's not really, it's not, I don't know if it's even listed, but I do have a picture of the thing. So these scissors are very tiny, um, gold handled, uh, like sewing scissors. They're very, very skinny. And, um, the, (laughs) oh my God. So uh, if you don't know anything, okay. So this is served, it's taco, it's chicken al pastor. Uh, with the scissors in it and then um, tortillas with laser engraving on the side. Okay. So if you don't know anything about how Mexican food works, especially if you're going to be eating high level Mexican food, um, tortillas are supposed to be cooked (laughs) again. They're already cooked. Okay. But if they're not, especially if they're not fresh, they're supposed to be cooked. And a lot of the times they're supposed to be seasoned. So, um, and you might not do this necessarily yourself, but you can take like a little bit of hot sauce, uh, and make like a little fucking salsa roja, uh, in a, in a pan and heat it up. It's like birria sauce. And then you just kind of dip the thing in it, both sides and then like drip it off. And then like you can cook it dry, you can put it over a fire and kind of but that red shit, um, seasons the tortilla cause tortillas don't have a lot of flavor to them. Cause it's just, it's literally just water and fucking flour. It's an unleavened bread. Um, which (laughs) he said, you're not getting bread tonight, but they bring in tacos, uh, tortillas, which are not only just unleavened bread, they are the fucking staple food of Mexico. Like everyone in Mexico eats fucking like tortillas, like all the time for stuff because the, the masa tortilla, from back in the fucking day was like just one of the most go-to ways to like process corn, corn masa into food to cook it. So you would just make like tortillas like make a fucking shitload of them. And then all of the other food that you make goes with the tortillas. It's not the only thing that you can eat in Mexican food. I'm not saying that, but it is like a staple ingredient in a lot of Mexican dishes. And it's, it's a common thing to find in a lot of Mexican households. It is it is literally the daily bread of, of, of people in Mexico. It's literally, and, and throughout, you know, um, the, 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 the continent over there, um, uh, that, like that whole region, because it, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to eat. It's like fucking like rice or something, you know, it, it's just a common way to make a basic food staple that's in the area. Um, I don't know if it's intentional on his part on the chef's part, but it is definitely intentional on the part of the, of the screenwriters that this fucking aggrandizing self-righteous fucking white guy. Who's got to be fantastically rich. He lives on an Island with his own private fucking army of chefs and his own individual house, right? That he said, you are not going to get bread bread is for the common man but then he serves mexican bread and is just like that's not bread is fucking fucking hilarious um the other good part about this is that uh he serves tacos al pastor al pastor means uh like literally like from the past like like shepherd style like you know pastoral shepherd style um a real technically the real al pastor comes from uh it's a Lebanese. It, uh, so there was like a Lebanese immigrant, like came from Lebanon to Mexico. Okay. Like f- fucking like a hundred years ago or something like that. And he liked shawarma and knew how to make shawarma and like told people about shawarma over there, but they don't have shawarma ingredients. Um, and you can't really eat halal all the time if you live in Mexico, because like pork is one of their really common, like it's one of the common animals you can have over there, pork, chicken, more so than beef. Um, which isn't halal, but then you can have, you know, tacos al pastor, like pork tacos al pastor. And so you, he showed them how to make al pastor and then they adopted it and like Mexicanized it and it became tacos al pastor or al pastor and pork al pastor. So you shred pork, right? And you put it down on little sticks, which is the exact same way that you make shawarma, little double skewer, and then you slow roast it or bake it and there's different ways to make it. But basically you kind of almost fully cook it And then you put it in the rotisserie and the rotisserie finishes it by like really darkening the outside. And then you shave bits off as you cook it. You can cook rotisserie style chicken and call it al pastor. But if you make chicken (laughs) al pastor and you don't finish it, it's not really chicken al pastor. It's just rotisserie chicken. So he just made rotisserie chicken and served it to him. I assume to a degree, the reason the chicken thigh has the scissors in it. Is and I don't know. I think he actually says it in this, but but I think it's implied that you are actually supposed to finish the al pastor process of chopping off the little bits of chicken onto your taco um, before you go because it's a fucking whole ass chicken thigh or breast. I, I don't know. It's a it's a full meat chunk, um, like a fucking filet medallion. So you cannot eat that on a fucking tortilla, <laughs> which you actually you can technically. Tyler does it. The douchebag puts the whole fucking chicken on one of the tortillas that he gets and just chomps the fuck into it, which is appalling. Just absolutely, uh, it, absolutely regressive. Um, the tortillas, by the way, sorry, are in laser engraved or laser etched. Uh, they have um, pictures burned onto them with a laser printer machine type deal. Um, he says it's the first time we used it. I hope you enjoy it. And of course, this is where the night really takes a turn for the worst. On the tortillas are printed uh, pictures of, like, sins, so to say, of people. The best part is, and it's it's still, it's fucking funny, it's fucking hilarious, is that not everybody gets the same vibe. Tyler's only has pictures of him taking pictures of the food, which he was told earlier not to do. And he's like, aw, you think he's mad at me? You think the chef's mad at me? And he's like, he doesn't quite, it doesn't slap for him. And the, the fact that there's diminishing returns on all of them is amazing. Because in a in like literally like a less well-made movie, everybody's sin would be perfect. And then it would be something to dwell on for their character, but it's not (laughs) the the tech bros is definitely the most damning on the tech bros is, is like, Oh my God, this guy's fucking, this guy's a mastermind. He has somehow gotten their um, credit score or their, their, their um, finance reports basically, and found out that they were cheating on them. And so he's got, all of this evidence on these tacos and it's printed out on there. And you're like, how the fuck could he even get that? And they're like, he hacked us. Like, what the fuck? Like these guys are like, it's intense. You know, And you're like, damn, this is almost supernatural level. Cool. For the, uh, other guy. Um, the rich old dude is pictures of him with some girls that are not his wife. And a lot of them look kind of like his daughter. And earlier on they were talking about, um, his, uh, daughter, um, is kind of like estranged from them or maybe deceased or gone or something. And he's like, I don't want to talk about her anymore. And, um, his wife notices our protagonist, uh, looks a lot like their daughter actually like, like kind of, kind of strikingly similar to their daughter. But, uh, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he like refuses to look in her direction for basically the rest of the night. Um, that's the, those are the tortillas that he gets. And, uh, which is still pretty good. You know, it's like how the hell are you get these pictures of this guy with these girls and all these different restaurants. Um the lady reporter or the yeah, the the lady reviewer gets a bunch of tortillas with printings of all kinds of restaurants and she goes, "Oh, these are all different restaurants that I wrote about and that are closed." Like, "Oh, that feels bad." which is a little bit more approachable, right? All you have to do is know anyone in the industry. And you're like, yeah, that bitch fucking, she, she did my restaurant and shut it down. The fucking the goddamn, I hate her. I fucking hate that bitch. Uh, but the best one is John Leguizamo just gets two tortillas with pictures of his playbill from his bad movie. Dr. Feel good. And he's like, what the fuck is this? He's like, Dr. Feel good. He's like, ah, oh, do you I, I fucking remember this. That's, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That's fucking ridiculous. Um, Uh, it's amazing. And, and so as you can see, there's diminishing returns and not everybody's stuff is necessarily like, uh, long-term research. Like Tyler shit is in the moment. And also they're directly related to the person, um, who brought you there. And there's nothing necessarily for the person that came with you. It's, it's, it's awesome. I should add also that these tacos are served with a big, like half pipe, shaped white bowl with some stuff in it. And yet again, it's those same orange and green colors. Right. And I think it's more of the melon ball shit. Maybe even it's like a little bit of avocado, but I have to stress this very powerfully. These tortillas are served with Al pastor chicken. There's a whole chunk of chicken with fucking scissors in it. No hot sauce, no sour cream, no pico de gallo, no fucking, no fucking guacamole, no fucking seasoning at all it's just grilled fucking chicken just plain white people taco night and i i don't know how much of it's intentional on the chef's part or if he's just an ignorant piece of shit that doesn't know about mexican food because he's a fucking racist and it's just great (laughs) if you brought that to me i would fucking lose my mind this is also one of the scenes where uh So the tech bros blow up and this is one of the scenes where we really get to see uh, the just one of the best line reads in the entire show. uh, And that is from Hong Chao again as the uh, Mater d and she just they're like, what the fuck is this? Looking at their own blackmail information, the tech bros. And she goes, those are tortillas, tortillas deliciosos, (laughs) deliciosas, tortillas deliciosas. (laughs) she keeps repeating that shit it's so fucking funny man it's it's literally to die for um but of course that is uh that, that sort of comes to the end and things are starting to get a little fired up people don't want to be there anymore it's starting to get a little uncomfortable for for most people also at this point tyler is starting to really fucking irritate um Really, really fucking irritate uh, the protagonist character. And you can tell that they're really not quite as close as you thought. And so it it degrades the closeness that they have degrades. very. very. At first, it's like it seems almost readily apparent that they are long term like lovers. You know what I mean? Like long term boyfriend, girlfriend sort of thing. Immediately that uh, illusion is destroyed um, when he checks in and she's not who she she's not who he originally invited. Um, as well by the time we get to this point you're almost like wait is it are they not actually a couple and this is like she's his sister or something because there is a level of growing unfamiliarity with his interactions with the knight and her interactions with him we were like well you should be at least a little bit used to this so like it went from them being extremely familiar with each other to a degree uh, to not which kind of infers what their relationship might actually be which we find out later, but I'll, I'll get to that so um at this point we are hitting the like half hour point of the movie and I know this is took a lot But we, we really start cooking after this because I don't have I only have we're, we're about halfway through the menu itself the fourth course the mess um Is where shit literally quite literally pops off and it is the uh the midpoint the return point of the joke that I will explain later about the Paco Jet. So, we are at this point reintroduced to uh, sous Chef Jeremy, who had a minor part earlier, the Paco Jet guy that Tyler talked to. He is brought up in front of everybody. He seems pretty nervous, maybe even a little bit sad, but he's got the same sort of like military, goose steppy energy that all the rest of the kitchen staff have. And so, um, the chef brings him up and he's like, Hello, everybody. I want you to know this is Jeremy. He is uh, our sous chef, Jeremy. He has prepared or planned out our fourth course for the night, what he calls the mess. And this whole time, uh, some of the other assistants in the kitchen are bringing out a big plastic uh, sheet and setting it on the ground and putting some little herb decorations um, on top of it, kind of setting it up like a plate. Sous chef Jeremy and the chef stand atop it, and the chef gives his... um, well, it was third speech of the night, actually, for the fourth course. Um, and he introduces the mess, which he says is sous chef Jeremy's invention. And um, he, he gives us a little bit about sous chef Jeremy and talks about what it's like being him. Uh, he says that sh- sh- uh, Jeremy is a good cook. He's a good cook, uh, but he's not a great cook. And he'll never live up to um, the high standards uh, and abilities of the chef himself. He, he is not that good. And so he's wasted his life doing stuff at this, at this restaurant, right? So he's come out here. He's lived this Spartan lifestyle and he absolutely regrets it. And he's burned out. And he's, he's just like literally miserable as fuck. You can see it in his eyes. Um, even earlier, uh, sous chef, Jeremy sets up, I believe another one of the jokes for later in, uh, later in the night. And that is, um, the emulsion joke. Uh, I I might've skipped over this earlier, but during the bread plate with no bread, one of the savory accompaniment accompaniments is a orange sauce of some sort. I, I can't tell what it is by sight. Um, that is an emulsion sauce. Um, if you don't know what an emulsion is, it's literally mixing oil with water. It's difficult to do. Uh, it's, it's basically one of the, 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 Intro techniques to being actually a, a cook or a chef is you have to be able to know how to make emulsions. Uh, emulsions are the best sauces in general. Mayonnaise is an emulsion. Even if you don't like mayonnaise, good mayonnaise is hard to make. Um, that's why they just whip up fat and water. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of the different types, but um, basically the way to get water and oil to mix together is to use some sort of setting agent after they're mixed. That could be acid, that could be heat, um, whatever it is. But once you get an emulsion, it has the best qualities of both liquids. It's got um, like a nice texture to it. It can be soft. Um, It really suspends the flavor in it and blah, 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 blah. But if you mess up the application of heat and um, acid, the oil and water will separate. Maybe not in the entire dish, but usually enough that you consider it a a broken sauce or a broken emulsion and so it, it's unusable in a fancy kitchen and it won't be particularly good compared to if you did it right but it's not necessarily something that um if you messed up in your own house you would just probably throw it away you you'd more than likely be able to keep it and use it and sometimes you can even uh try again so to say and uh and and um, make it the right way the next time but um I digress uh the at the very beginning, you see the chef taking a taste of something that Jeremy's cooking in a pot, which is probably an emulsion. Um, and he has a spoonful of it and he like kind of sighs and goes, okay. And like, that's like, and then they, then they sort of begin, um, the chef is, um, an asshole and kind of a fucking dumb fuck in my opinion, right? Once you kind of get deep into it, Uh, but he is not sparing with compliments and direct observation. Even if he's kind of want to like undercut something, I feel like if he would have tasted that and it would have been good, he would have said good, but he says, okay. And like they begin the night. And so, I mean, even if it is, or it isn't, uh, it's no effect, but basically um, the emulsion comes into play during the breadless bread plate. The, um, critic is a bitch and she's complaining that, uh, the emulsions broken on one of the sauces. You can see that's kind of separated on top. Um, and so they just bring her out the entire thing of broken emulsion, the entire pot, like in a bowl. And, uh, then they do it to her again later on after a more intense moment. I think actually even after this, it might be even after this moment. Um, and so, uh, you know, he sets, she sets it down in front of him. It's just, you know, big broken emulsion with a bunch of uh, floating oil on top of it. And I think that Jeremy is the one that broke down emulsion, and that's why the the, the uh, chef said that. Um sous chef shouldn't necessarily be making that. I mean, I guess he can because he's helping, but, I mean, that's a saucier thing. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, he might be just trusted with it because he's mad good. But usually the sous chef should have something a little bit more important to do. Um, especially because he is putting together his own fourth course in this, and it's a very small kitchen. So they shouldn't be really cooking the courses necessarily between (laughs) Um, each course, you know, uh, to a degree, maybe some things are, um, but a lot of things are made like a little while out. And so you don't need to make them immediately uh, and serve them some things you do. So I, I, I don't know necessarily, maybe that is why he's making the emulsion, but um the chef does bring him up and he just fucking ruins him in front of everybody. and tells everyone he's a bad chef and he's never going to make it. And that, um, he's just, you know, he's tired of this life and he doesn't want to live it anymore. And fucking Jeremy, he's like, but so this is the fourth course, the mess. And Jeremy puts a gun in his mouth and blows his fucking brains out. Um, the people in the kitchen close a bunch of big plastic sheets so that his brains don't go into the food. Very considerate. um, and he falls down dead on the on, on the plastic. Everybody freaks out, and at this point you see the big divert like the big the big separation, basically, um in uh the psychologies of everybody. Um John Leguzama's character is terrified and 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 like they're rightfully scared. Um Tyler's character, the douchebag, is he's just like, wow, this is incredible that we're getting to see this. Uh, the protagonist, she's very nervous, but probably she's of the disposition where she's not going to try to like interfere while these guns are up. All of the front of house guys sort of pile in and kind of stand close to keep people from leaving. The rich guy does try to leave. Um, he tries to fight his way out. Um, but people are just kind of like generally getting ushered around, but the old ass white man tries to leave off and they ask him which one. And uh he gets his fucking finger cut off <laughs> and they take him back to his table. And that kind of just breaks the, the resistance for everybody else. The tech bros are just a little bit upset. But one of the best reactions, the really the best reaction, I think, to all of this um, is from the reviewer who says – and she kind of – she just looks and she goes, um, this is just for us. And I mean only us. Like uh basically – um, no matter how crazy all of this shit is getting, um, it's a show that's being put on just for her and her partner at the thing. Like, so even if the other people are being murdered, ki- like people are killing themselves, this guy chopped his own fucking finger off. Even if that is happening, the, uh, whole of this show is just for her benefit, right? Because she is an upper class, you know, white liberal upper Manhattan type lady, little writer chick. Um, she's, she's so above it that there's no way anybody would kill her. So she can't even just, it's, there's no point even considering the possibility that she was lured here to be murdered and some sort of farce because that would be obscene. So all of this is just a play being put on for her amusement um, as part of a bigger show that's going on and it's, it's, it's it's fucking great. And she says, this is just for us. I mean, only us, which is a perfect line um, because that is really like echoed. You know, if you see like the bigger kind of things outside of this, that is something that's a vibe that you get. And I, I especially get it from like when I hear really, really wealthy uh, famous people talk about stuff, it is always in reference to them in a way that it, it just the vibe when they discuss, when they discuss stuff is not like it is when I hear other people talk about it, you know, it's um, you'll hear like really rich people and, and people like her, especially uh, you know, high level media personalities. And they talk about stuff like they are like, you know, they got, they got to see the play. Like they were there first, you know, they can, they can discuss the entirety of this or that tragedy, because after a fashion, it is sort of like a show that's put on for them, because it, they're never going to be a part of it. But they, it can only be observed because they are so far above the action and outside of it that um, there is no stake for them. So even in this case, she's like, "Well, that has to be the case. I can't, I cannot take risk. I, I can't even be risked. I don't." Risk doesn't a- approach me. I'm, I'm a fucking super rich white lady. There's nothing. There are no real issues for me in life. Other people have problems. I cause problem, problems for people. You know that's why she can be so cruel in her reviews and so cutting and shutting down all of these uh, other restaurants and stuff is because you know it, the, the the thought of making something of, of building something is is in insane to her, that that's labor. That's work. She's never done that. Uh, in any in any way that would make sense. That's how you end up as a fucking food critic. You don't, you don't, you don't become a food critic like that. And you came up through the fucking through the galleys and stuff. You know, you, you, you weren't a fucking scullion. And then somehow that happened. She's just another rich bitch that probably went to some fucking fancy. She went to Columbia or something and grew up on the the, the East coast. And you know, her choices were um, her, her, her feminist choice in life, her big, uh, her big moment where, where she set herself apart from these, uh, these other sheep, like women that she grew up with, was well, she didn't marry a guy that uh, she met at cotillion. <laughs> she said, I'm going to live my own life and I will have a hyphen in my last name. Uh, it's real out here for us women. <laughs> Keep girl boss. Um, and, uh, you know, that mentality is just perfect. So and you, can, you can see that, like, in the real world. But, of course, uh, Jeremy dies. <laughs> and um, there is a bit of, uh, like, a little gaslighting moment. They never say that he didn't kill himself. Um, and they never say that it's fake or that the gun's not real. The chef just says it's part of the experience. This is all part of the experience. Nothing is nothing wrong has happened. Nothing that we didn't. This is all part of the, the, the experience for the night. You know, there's no insinuation that this is wrong at all. And everybody should sit, should should sit down. Even when the uh, old guy gets his finger cut off, which is pretty funny. Um, we must talk about the mess because this is the one of the most uh, – it, it's almost on the nose. So um, the mess is pressure-cooked vegetables, roasted filet, potato confit, long, slow cooking process, which is a long, slow cooking process for preservation. That's my own note I put in there. Um, beef jus and bone marrow. Um, beef jus is – Uh, J-U-S uh, is the juice from whatever you've cooked. So these roasted fillets, um, when they were roasted, the juice that came out of them is served again with them. Sometimes there's additional preparation that goes into J-U. Sometimes there's not. Um, J-U is basically a a type of quick gravy. Um, It's sometimes just the way that you cook something, the J-U will come out ready. So if you make like a steak with a garlic butter sauce, when you're done cooking that steak, that butter sauce mixed in with the proteins and fats that come out of the steak and the own, the fats that are in the butter themselves. Once you finish that, if you take you, you you take out your steaks and you rest them, if you um you deglaze that pan, you know, with like a little bit of uh, red wine, a little red cooking wine or something, and and whip that together. And like while it cools, you can make a nice like little thin sauce. You can also just dump it straight over the steak once the steak's well-rested or even without letting the steak rest, however you want to try to go after it. Other um, jus, uh, I don't know how to say that in plural, but uh, another type of jus is just like um, almost like a gravy. So you'll throw in... You'll finish cooking whatever you whatever you want. I'm not going to reference a specific protein, but um, say it's a steak again and you want to have a slightly different type of um, quick sauce, you might throw in a little bit of uh, sugar and flour, right, to thicken it up to almost like a kind of like um, a gravy-type consistency. You make like a false roux from it and then cook that up with some sugar, and then it becomes – Uh, This is actually a specific type of sauce, but it's very close to what you would think of as like a barbecue sauce or something which without the tomato. And then you can put that over it. That's a little bit different. Um, That's what I wouldn't almost necessarily even call that example a jus. But I've seen a jus that is like that. A just means in, in jus. So it's literally um, beef, jus, beef, juice. So um, beef au jus would be beef with its juice on it. Or on its own juice, whatever the fuck. I don't speak enough French. Um, but it's a roasted filet, potato confit, pressure cooked vegetables, um, and bone marrow. And it's a kind of an interesting, obviously, there's um, a feeling that you're really eating Jeremy here if you partake in this um, specific meal. It is, um, I would say, one of the less appealing, even plated. Um, of the of the basic ones that show up Um, it is it really is a mess Uh, the potato confit I believe that's what those are I don't know I don't know I don't know yeah that's 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 probably potato confit right there Um, the, the steak is cooked very lightly. I think it is actually a Wagyu filet filet. It's got really, really dense marbling in it. Um, it's got that sort of lightness and it, it has that, that look to it that, um, Wagyu has where it's kind of almost like uh, watery and gelatinous. People really like Wagyu beef. I think it looks very unappealing, but whatever. Um, not all these vegetables are pressure cooked. (laughs) Uh, there's a moral on this plate. I believe that's what that is. Um, there is just a seared, there's two seared onions, which are definitely not pressure cooked. Um, I don't know why they put that in there. I don't know really what is pressure cooked on here. I, I can see the confit or maybe those are, um, pressure cooked like leek ends possibly. Um, but actually, yeah, the, the, the plate, once I look at it, doesn't, doesn't necessarily look like that. And, uh, the jus is actually, um, it has, they have made a gravy instead of just a standard. So they mix some flour in there and, uh, and put it out. So it's got a nice brown, a nice, uh, a nice occluded, um, color to it. But, uh, the bone marrow is served in bone, um, which is not, uh, terribly uncommon. That's a way to do it. So you just roast the bone, um, with the bone marrow in it, maybe after scraping it out of the other stuff, I've never cooked bone marrow. I don't, I don't particularly appreciate the taste. I think it's, not the best thing. It's not bad either. I mean, it can be pretty mouthwatering, but it's not something I go for, especially considering it's usually kind of expensive to get, um, even though it's technically technically a byproduct. But uh, this is served inside the bone. So the the B, the the bone marrow is in there. The entire dish does lack a sense of coherence if you're looking at it, which it it's kind of justified if it's called the mess. There are just sprigs of, um, I don't know if that's just spinach, maybe Uh, some, some, some sort of, um, leaf vegetable atop it. And then everything's kind of just arranged around this bone in the middle. And it really like it, (laughs) even the gravy is touching the vegetable instead of the meat, which is kind of great. And there's some little scraps of shit. But the thing is, is like, if you eat this, you kind of have to go after each part individually which is the lack of cohesion element because you have that marrow in the middle that demands you have to address it on its own with a special utensil. You're going to have to use like a little tiny marrow fork or a marrow spoon um, and maybe get that out there and put it on. I don't know if you're supposed to eat it directly. The thing about the the former plates um, and why they had the cohesion is that when you look at them, how you're supposed to approach it to eat it makes sense to, to some degree. I mean, the scallop you just take and eat it. Uh, same with the uh, the Amuse Bouche. The bread isn't even there, but they still give you a little spoon to scrape things out. And so it's quite obvious. Then when you when you get to the mess, it's not. There is just a lot of good ingredients, right? It's all well done, but the point of the dish is kind of missed. So that's that's the mess. That's why it is the mess. R.I.P. Jeremy Luden, which is his actual name which I think might actually be a real other person's name, but I, I digress. So um, obviously there's just some straightforward um, allegory here or analogy to um, – or metaphor maybe, whatever, to Jeremy himself. Pressure-cooked vegetables. Obviously he is literally in the pressure cooker environment of a kitchen. That's what people refer to it all the time as, you know, I feel I feel like these vegetables, like pressure-cooked. Potato confit is um, – basically a preservative. Um, It's cooked over a very long period of time, like several hours. Um, I looked this up because I don't fuck with confit very often. I just see that at a restaurant and maybe I'll eat it. Um, It's cooked over several hours, uh, maybe even days in like brine water or like vinegar or whatever the hell um, is a, is a preservative method. And then you can eat it afterwards, but it's a long, slow, Moderate heat cooking process. Bone marrow is uh, roasted, and you know when you talk about your like when something bothers you, it gets you down into your bones. You know, like the the issue is literally bone deep, and you know the, this this is just and it's an on the face metaphor as well, which you know the the chef would get butt about. Jeremy says I'm feeling bad. Here's roasted fillet, raw, almost raw meat, pink meat. I think it's actually sous vide, probably from the look of it. Um, Pressure-cooked vegetables, uh, just a roasted bone, you know, all of this. And it's just so direct, but it does seriously lack like a sense of cohesion, a lot of well-done things that don't quite work together. So maybe actually the chef does have a point about Jeremy, but more than likely the chef wasn't the kind of guy to help Jeremy out to figure out that next step to make it like an artistic statement so to say, but that's the mess. The mess is Jeremy. Unfortunately, after this, we have a very long breakdown The the fourth course to the palate cleanser takes a minute. All right. Um, or the fourth course. Yeah. Through, 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 the sixth, uh, all the distance between the courses spreads out pretty significantly right now. Um, but yeah, we go to the palate cleanser, which is the fifth course. Um, a palate cleanser is not just, uh, This is, it's metaphorical and direct. Obviously after the fourth course, it's very intense. Uh, A guy gets his fucking finger cut off. um, And uh, you want to literally cleanse their palate and get everybody calmed down before you go into uh, the next dish. The penultimate dish of a seven course meal, which this is, um, is the main course really. Uh, that's the, the, the penultimate course is going to be the one that's the, your real showstopper. It's the second to last one. And then you have your dessert on the way out. So you, 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 your dessert is the seventh course and then the finale. And then if you, if you're actually at a restaurant, that's not just a, uh, an experience, like a seven course experience and you're having courses because you're just rich as shit. Then you sit around for a while and you have your, uh, uh, digestives and all that stuff and hang out and drink limoncello or whatever the fuck. But we go to our palate cleanser, um, and this is notable because there is in this uh, another fucking joke. And this is where we start getting our payoffs for random jokes and even things from the fucking uh, – from the trailer. Most of the trailer's scenes are taken from either the first couple minutes of the movie or specifically from the palate cleanser and sixth course of the meal. Uh, especially the most notable ones. So in the palate cleanser, we are, it's simply tea, wild bergamot and red clover tea. And it says that extremely specifically wild bergamot and red clover tea, which, um, and uh, which, which is, I believe yet another fucking joke. And it's actually fucking, uh, and, and actually a funny one. Cause you have to be an asshole to get it. Um, which I am. So, um, the, the tea is served. Everybody's pretty intensely worried, right? The chef's trying to calm every down, everybody down. And Tyler, who is a douchebag, and he's obviously sucking down the food uh, even when uh, poor Jeremy has just blown his brains out. Uh, he takes a sip, and this is the thing from the trailer. You see him say, oh, is, is that bergamot? Is that bergamot, chef? And he goes, Yeah, that's bergamot. Is it the bergamot I detect? Um, Okay, so this is, and I was just like, I don't even know what the fuck bergamot is, so I'm going to look it up because everything in this show has had like this note of intentionality. And so I go to bergamot and find out that wild bergamot and bergamot are two different things. They are, they don't even taste the same. Um, It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, Issue with the name. So wild bergamot um, is a, from the mint family, and it's a type of thyme, basically. It, it, it tastes like thyme, T-H-Y-M-E, which um, kind of hard to bring up, but thyme goes good. It's very much a savory, very much a savory flavor. I would say one of the most penultimate or ultimate savory flavors of uh, of western typical western french cooking it's it, right up there with literally rosemary which is why they're often together something that you use to season um root vegetables uh maybe fish large meat items stews very intense um powerful flavor um and that's wild bergamot that's what wild bergamot tastes like what wild bergamot's really known for is that it does have medicinal effects like Planning, you can actually tell that it's doing it to you. Um, I'm not going to say the scientific terms for them because they don't make any goddamn sense and I didn't write them down anyway. But basically, um, it can relieve flatulence. So it's an anti-fart drug um, and also makes you sweat. It it, it literally causes um, sweating. And uh, through all of this, it can relieve nausea and vomiting and stuff. And so it was taken by early white settlers in America very often as a tea, um, to get over stomach illnesses and, uh, to help them sweat out flus, so to say. And, um, real bergamot, bergamot, bergamot tastes like oranges. And it's actually like a bark that you shave off the side of a tree instead of, um, wild bergamot, which is like a, a flowery, uh, root thing wild, right? So when Tyler says, um, is that bergamot I detect? And the chef's like, it's bergamot. Um, that actually might be a joke into him being a fucking <laughs> big ass douchebag. So if the tea is wild bergamot and red clover, uh, you wouldn't be tasting Bergamot, you'd be tasting something like orange. Maybe you could maybe figure it out if it tastes like oranges, but it could just as likely be like orange peel or something. But if it's wild bergamot, it would be a different flavor entirely. It's time. And so Tyler, we find out a little bit later, has been routinely um, emailing with the chef ahead of this event. And I won't get into that specifically just yet. Uh, but you can tell that he's a massive fan of the chefs and stuff, and even though he hasn't come, been able to come eat at one of his places yet, he's probably memorized some of the menus. And so being the kind of guy he is, he just says what he remembered is supposed to be this course on the menu, which is wild bergamot and red clover tea. But he says, is that – he didn't say – it's like, oh, is that wild bergamot I detect or – if you're a more common person, probably something along the lines of, is that time? But he says Bergamot specifically. So like maybe even the chef is just like that. Yeah, it's Bergamot. Like I know you looked up the fucking menu before you got here. I'm doing something like I'm working. I don't know. It, it might be much, but uh, it is just interesting that these are both um, medicinal ingredients. Red clover, by the way, has a light and sweet taste kind of like a bean Um, and it is, has phytoestrogen and helps with menopause and prostate health. Allegedly, that's not necessarily medicinal effect. Um, that's like proven that it's actually a thing. There's chemicals in it that does that. Uh, people just think that that's a thing. And so it's like, you know, St. John's word or whatever the hell, all those things that you can buy at Kroger, um, you can, you can get it. Um, during the palate cleanser, we have the dinner show, which is a farce that's put on, um, and it is the No Substitutions at Hawthorne. And it's one of uh, multiple shows, sort of put on these multiple farces. Um, and this one's kind of great. So we find out why the Tech Bros specifically have been invited. They are part of some investment group led by some philanthropist, a rich fucking asshole, right? Um, And he was a quote-unquote angel investor, i.e. a person that gives you a large influx of cash in order to keep your business running uh, during a crisis. Uh, In this case, it was COVID. So this is literally post-COVID. This is supposed to take place like this year, 2022, functionally speaking. And so uh, this angel investor guy obviously comes in and starts fucking wiping his feet on the floor and asks for substitutions to the menu to like cut down on costs or maybe just to have substitutions, uh, which the chef is not happy about. He directs everybody's attention outside through the big glass windows and we see the <laughs> we see this guy being lowered into the water uh, or dangling over the ocean, basically in two big ass fake angel wings. And he's just hanging from cables Um, earlier. And there's a there's a short cutaway shortly after, I believe, uh, the sous chef shoots himself. um, Our protagonist sneaks away to the bathroom to have a cigarette uh, and has an aggressive conversation with the chef um, in regards to whether or not she belongs there. And uh, she uh, she says she does not and he agrees. But while she's smoking a cigarette, blowing smoke out through the uh, window. She looks outside and just sees the, I think the sommelier walking across uh, a field outside with this giant pair of angel wings. And it's just like, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous, but it's a great, it's a great scene. But anyway, um, and and just as a, a quick aside, um, I, I gotta say, I don't talk too much about the protagonist because she is a sort of, um, pleasantly empty character. She really is kind of a stand in for the audience. You know, um, everybody else gets to do stuff and she sort of reacts to it. Mostly um, when I'm not talking about her in general, throughout the entirety of every scene, she's just saying, I really don't want to eat whatever the hell it is. I'm being served or this is ridiculous or this is dumb. Uh, It doesn't really need to be gone into just know that she's doing that basically every time. And the chef is getting a little bit more irritated with her. For that reason and for other reasons, which will become apparent um, very, very soon. But um, he ends the dinner show screaming through the window. There are no substitutions at Hawthorne, <laughs> which I really love. Um, and so uh, we get to the uh, the diversion, the, the rest of the palate cleanser for the um, fifth course, which is... Uh, a farce, a um, reimagining, so to say, of the most dangerous game. They just do the most dangerous game, um, non-lethal style. Everybody's taken outside um, for this uh, quick diversionary thing, right? And the it's, this is the the sixth course, sixth course speech. The um, chef talks to everyone and says, so there's always a lot of problems between men and women. And I am a man and I am unfortunately weak and I am flawed. uh, And I made unwarranted and repetitive sexual advances against one of my subordinates, who is one of the high ranking uh, women, one of the only other high ranking women on, on his staff. Um, There's other women. um, It's mostly men, I believe, but, Um, it's her and the maitre d are the only two speaking role females um, from his staff. And um, I can't remember this woman's name (laughs) at all uh, in the thing, but I I think she's just the other sous chef, which is perfectly fine with me. And so um, he says something along the lines of, you know, I've never really outlived the, the stain of my father's misogyny kind of stuff, but I'm ready here now in front of all of you to accept the, um, what do you call it Accept the uh punishment for my, my my ill deeds and so he gives her or she takes out one of the golden pairs of scissors that was stabbed in the thigh of or in, in the chicken earlier and stabs him in the leg with it she stabs him in the thigh the same way that he stabbed his dad so to say um and it's a big ceremonial thing she pokes him and he is just bleeding from that leg for the rest of the thing it's very real And uh, pulls out the scissors and whatever, and then wipes a big bloody handprint across him. But of course we go through this whole, uh, this whole charade, you know, this farce again. And um, clearly there's a lot of references that are made to the COVID era. And of course, COVID era is also the me too era. Um, And this is very much uh, a me too, mea culpa. Uh, We've seen a million of them in the past year and stuff. And, Um, This is a diversion, which isn't really a a diversion at all. It's just a description of the scene that goes deeper. This really is um, just another mark against the chef as a person and not necessarily because um, he's a sex pest, which is obviously bad in its own right. But because he is also one of those um, this is my apology video kind of guys, you know, he is not a person that has learned from his mistakes. He's not. I, I don't care if he stopped sexually harassing people. The, like It's so deep and it's perfect. He is not a different person than he was. And getting stabbed in the leg changes literally nothing. It's not a punishment to make him avoid future mistakes that he did. It's just um, a, a price he's paying in order to have done it and then not be bothered with it anymore. You know, you can stab me in the leg and then we're good. The, the the reason that it's, it's like clearly that he hasn't changed is he's lured a bunch of people here. And by this time, he said it very plainly to murder all of them. He's going to kill every single, but everybody's going to die tonight, including his own staff. So not only is he not learned from his mistake of using his position of authority to abuse a woman that's working for him, he's literally doing it worse now and using his authority to fucking brainwash a bunch of dipshit fucking uh, 25-year-olds and uh, kitchen staff motherfuckers to die for him in the most pointless way possible. It's absolutely, it's so dumb. He is a bad person, and he is just such a piece of shit. And he's so dislikable, and I, I love that about him. And you really see it. Rafe finds, I have to say, understands this character to a T. He plays him perfectly. When it's time to do the big bad speeches and I'm an intimidating chef, he is. But in the moments where he is being denied or when he's not getting his way, he is a barely concealed, pouty little bitch. Rafe finds, despite the scariness of his head, plays off in his eyes just this wounded, offended child perfectly. And that's when you really get to see into him. And that is the best thing about the scenes between him and the protagonist is he will give her these these long looks from across the kitchen when he sees that she's not eating or hears her complaining. And it's just all of his bluster is gone. He's still this like intimidating guy, but if you're not looking at his eyes, you know if you look past his posture, he looks like he's about – to fucking cry or like to piss himself like like he's being uh scolded by like the literal personification of all of his self-doubt is screaming at him at that moment and he is he is just a coward and he is just a weak man and he is a person that should not have been given authority over these people he can just cook kind of good which you don't ever see proven in the movie, because all of the food that he serves is dog shit. Um, there is nothing necessarily special about the chef. His entire life is a farce, right? It is built upon ideas of ideas of ideas of ideas of ideas of who he is and what food is. That is such a house of cards. Anything that anything can collapse it, you know? The value of a carpenter is never doubted. Before, during, or after a plague. Maybe only by people like him. But a man that can fucking bind wood and build a home has a permanent value in society. Where is this chef who cooks this obscene food for these obscene people? Um, He is like literally just an incident of the time. He's a, a ghost of a literal zeitgeist is what I'm about to say. And it's amazing. And it's replicated in this scene. And I don't know if he did it on purpose, but I have to assume that the there's three, there's two things that the fucking it's stabbed into the little, the little scissors. And the other thing is a chicken. Like he literally has served chicken stabbed with the same, uh, scissors that he stabbed himself with. He's a fucking chicken shit. He's a coward. And the thing he's not afraid of is like death or, um, you know, even necessarily financial ruin, it is very clearly his ability, his, his, his persona as a chef. That is the only thing he values. It is the only thing that causes him to change from his measured, direct, slightly elevated, aggressive tone is that I am a good cook. I'm a cook. I cook. Cook. Over and over again, cook, cook, cook. That is the only thing he has going for him, and if it's if that that legend is even threatened for a second, that shit will fuck him up even more. That is why he said so magnanimous my. Ugh. That is why he so magnanimously takes this uh, punishment from from this female employee uh, to show that he is uh, that he is you know above such base and uh, foolish things that he can grow too, even though. He does the same thing. Like there's literally no difference between sexually harassing, like no valuable difference between sexually harassing a female member of your staff and then emotionally manipulating another male member of your staff into fucking killing themselves. There is no valuable difference between these two things for me. I I deny you. I deny you to ever say there is like literally it's the same technique applied to slightly different ends, both of which are horrible. And he gladly does the other one. He does not cut off a finger or, or, or slap himself in the face or, 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 or or slice open his own fucking eyeball over poor fucking sous chef. Jeremy, Jeremy is just meat. All right. But once he has his, his reputation is, is attacked, you know, by this woman bringing forth these as allegations, you're a sex pest, you know, and that's causing doubt in, in, in your, your legend, then he stands up. And if that's not just the most American shit ever, like, I don't know what is, um, and, and, of course, we're, we're, we're really getting into all the payoffs. So all of these things that I've been setting up, I hope you've been paying attention at least a little bit to me. I know it's been a lot, but uh, all of this will will round out. And we are definitely going to be longer than the movie and the discussions of the movie, but they just did such such a good fucking job that I can continuously talk about this film uh, for, for forever. And I love it. I love that scene. I love how it's portrayed. If you didn't have all of these actors and just – all of the everything set up so perfectly it just wouldn't work and i love it but anyway um this this conversation is um also uh fronted against a uh, a statement against sexism and how men men are are cowards and awful and you know all of these uh, all these wonderful uh pseudo non-truths that came from uh the worst Participants in the Me Too movement, you know, like Me Too is a good thing. It was a very good thing. Um, powerful men should not be uh, permitted to to behave in, in such a foul way, and you should not be afraid to talk about your, um, you, you know, your trauma or somebody assaulting you like that. That is absolutely that's a great takeaway from it. But there are. Aspects of me, too. And I think everybody can fucking everybody can accept this where there were people that were uh, taking all of the wrong lessons from it. You know, it's not, you know, power differentials are bad. It's specifically men are bad. Uh, and And just being a man is just literally like you can't do anything about it. You can't grow as a person. Uh, You can't learn. It's not a societal systemic thing. It's, it's a genetic thing. You're just a man. You're a violent uh, pants, shitting, unwashed brute, uh, wandering the desert of existence uh, with only a a mind for rape and nothing else. And like, you just heard like a lot of that being part of it. And guys like him would uh, take those people's sides because it serves a two part thing, right? It allows him, he he's still rich and he's still white and he's still a dude and he can still do sex best shit. If he wants, he's got stamina leg. Like he's good now. Um, but he gets to say after a fashion that, um, I'm not really responsible for my behavior. It, it's endemic. It's, it's endemic to the inside of me. And so, because I can't alter that behavior because it's natural to me, um, you know, other steps have to be taken, but I can't really be blamed for it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I know I'm getting here in a long way. And so this continues into his his little fucking uh, go-about with these people. And he has his he puts on his farce, which is the most dangerous game. The men and the women are separated, and the men are allowed to run away and try to flee the island. And if they get away from his staff, who are going to go chase them over an island that they've been living on for months, years maybe, um, then, then they can escape and they won't die, whatever. I still don't understand how nobody gets away because I'd be fucking, I'd be gone. I'd be in the woods stabbing people with chunks of fucking broken stick. Like I, I might get caught, but you're going you're gonna to bring me in fucked up, which nobody gets brought in fucked up. I mean, one person is just a little dusty, I think because they fell over, uh, but I digress. His, his, it's just a, a statement about how failed his understanding of the issue is because he's like the way to solve it is just to keep women and men separate. And it's like so your 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 solution for male and female interaction is just religious segregation basically. Just a religious level of segregation. Just keep men and women separate. Maybe even women should just dress head to toe, you know, in obscuring clothes so that you can't you just don't get that fucking why it is And uh, that is, that's, that's one of like the worst takeaways from the worst people that were having any talk about Me Too and uh, the sexual interactions and and, and interpersonal interactions and workplace interactions between men and women. And it was just, well, maybe there's a place for women and a place for men and those places aren't together and say, how the fuck are you supposed to be on the left side of issues and you arrived at the same uh the, the the same solution as the fucking taliban are you stupid <laughs> um and so the men are humiliated the men are humiliated for something they didn't do um and only the ones who participate in their own humiliation are really as humiliated tyler who's a literal sociopath i believe. Um, barely runs away. He doesn't even really, he actually just walks around the side of the building and then stares in through the window from about 10, 15 feet away. And then gets kind of like bullied back where he's supposed to be. So he doesn't even humiliate himself trying to run away. They're They're just humiliated for their literal justifiable inborn desire to not die, you know, and they sprint off. Um, which I think is fine. It, no one's gonna get saved, and and the fucking funny part is, is like the women just go back inside too. They could have also just ran, but they don't. Um, which is I, there's something to be said about that as well. But it's all like a fucking hilariously uh shitty setup. Uh, but they do do the most dangerous game, and uh, it's non-lethal. They all just get grabbed and brought back. Uh, I think the one guy manages to get. Into the water or he just goes to the beach And then just stops or something like that I can't quite remember um, But uh, We do We do get to uh, see the, who, who won and the, the winner is The simp of course uh, The simpering um, Cowardly magazine editor Goes and hides in the chicken coop um, And uh, Is Rewarded by being the last one found With a Passard egg Which is, I'm going to go ahead and on a diversion because this is actually a, this is a dessert joke. This is a dessert cooking joke. So it's, they had to go run and you have no idea how long it's going to take to go catch these guys and bring them back. Correct. That's the idea of it. So while this guy's hiding in a chicken coop, they bring him a, a gilded Passard egg. A Passard egg it, which is just in this, it says egg cream, fresh, and maple. They left off one of the ingredients again on the menu card. Um, it has chives on it and it has chives on it in the picture too. Um, a Passard egg, which I had to look up because I was just like, that's an interesting dessert and I want to know more about it. Cause I didn't know if it was real or not. It is named for chef Elaine Passard, who is French. And it is uh, according to the internet, a bitch of a dish to get right. It's called basically a hot, cold, soft boiled egg. You have to make it fast and serve it immediately. The yolk is served hot, the cream is cold, and the arranged bits atop of it all have to sit in place and stay set. And they will all start falling apart almost immediately after um, it's put together. So basically, the dish is made by cleanly removing the top of an egg. This is already too hard for most people to do. This is a very difficult thing. Um, Passard has a specific... Only, it's, it's only used for this. It's a little snapper. It goes, Pachop! and it cleanly cuts the top of this egg off on, on the short side. From there, you pour out the white, you maintain the yolk, um, and then you take it and you set it uh, with the little cup side and you keep it in the egg. You set it in water, simmering water, and it will actually float around in the water and cook for about three minutes. Now, it's a soft-boiled egg, so you can't hard-boil it. So it's got to come out soft-boiled because you won't be able to eat it if it's not soft-boiled. So you have to have that timed perfectly. You have to know how to soft-boil not just an egg, but specifically an egg yolk, which cooks at a different amount of time than an egg, which also cooks at a different amount of time than an egg that's open. Um, So you have to have an extreme familiarity with your pots, your pans, the heat of your stove, how hot your water is how much time it takes to cook in that specific, like in temperature environment inside your kitchen. Pissar does it perfect every time, of course. Um, you also have to kit it. The, the top of the cut has to be clean so that the egg stays whole and doesn't break while they're trying to eat it. Um, while you're floating the egg, you've got to make uh, a whipped cream fresh. So cream fresh is like, I don't know, I guess it's fresh cream I think I've had cream fresh before on something and I didn't find it particularly, uh, to my taste. but I, cause I think it's a little bit sour. It's kind of like a sour whipping cream instead of just normal whipping cream, but you can whip it like whipped cream. Um, and so you, you make a, a soft whip. Um, at least Pissard does, he makes a soft, like a lower, um, light peaks instead of high, hard peaks. Um, in the, in the show, they make a full whip with it. So it's, it's really tall, stiff peak so that they can pipe it and it keeps its thing. Um, Passard serves it, um, with his cream spooned into the top, but I digress. Um, while the yolk is cooking, you make this, um, you make the, the cream, right. Which, uh, you put in stuff into it. Like I think like vinegar actually um and that whips it up and so it's got its own like sweet cool taste to it like a neutrally sweet cool um no sugar i don't think but the, you do put some flavoring agents in it um the yolk specifically gets a little bit of the salt and pepper put onto it while it cooks as well um but it's a whole oak, it's a whole yolk too um unsplit so you got to get all that out of there without splitting the yolk as well cuz the yolk's got to cook up as a perfect little soft ball. If you split it, I believe the little membrane um, won't stay in place and it'll stick to the sides of the egg and it won't be as pleasant. So that comes out hot. You've got to put all the cool stuff on top of it. And then you add uh, a little bit of chives, which are savory. And then um, the must have is a little bit of maple syrup, which is very light and sweet. And so all of those things together are spooned out of it and eaten immediately. So if you're going to make a egg. Your literal time to table is an unflinching four minutes and I, like, literally no less. It has to be eaten – basically you put it together almost at like service, eat, service, eat immediately. It's a it's a uh, a non-static, a non-sitting dish because the whipped cream, if it's heated uh, and warms, it will disintegrate and it will turn into mush and it won't taste good. It will split and fall apart and it won't be that good. Um, and so you want the hot and the cold and then the savory and the sweet all together and you eat it with a tiny little spoon or, um, you know, um, what they call them soldiers of bread. Uh, and so they have a thing where they're like, we've got to go catch these guys. And they have so little faith in them that they have the balls to cook a fucking pisard egg for the victor. And they know where they know where to find him. So like. It's for the the, the, the flex, the absolute flex of his kitchen staff is monstrous. So just cooking a Passard egg and making it look good is hard. It is, it's a professional grade dessert. It's not easy. You have to have special tools to even fucking make the thing the perfect right way. They serve theirs gilded. So not only do they cook it, they, they crack it, they cook it. They somehow manage to cool it off just enough to gild it Um, without letting it actually cool because it's also just an egg. So it'll get cold as fuck immediately. They're walking outside with it and everyone's wearing jackets. So it's not warm necessarily. They managed to throw all that together and then walk it out to a fucking chicken coop first service plated in a little false bird's nest. That is a fucking flex. Like they brought that bitch a Passard egg. They had no confidence They had no fucking confidence in the last one that they would catch. So they could just fucking cook this four-minute masterful masterpiece dessert. It's piped. The icing's piped onto it, too, or the cream's piped in. Absolute flex. And I was just like, I don't know. What the fuck is a Passard egg? And then when you put it together, you're like, God damn, no faith. No faith that she would make it. you were doomed. they knew that they could give the last guy they caught a bizarre egg. absolute insanity um and that shits just that's shit's just funny. so um while the boys are out running around, the girls get to sit and have a uh, little wine mom uh time. They're all sitting around getting drunk talking about how bad everything is, and of course doing absolutely nothing about it, even though quite clearly. They said all of the, the, the able-bodied men are out chasing these other guys. So, like, this is your time to do something, bitches. This is your fucking moment. Like, are you just going to sit on your fucking hands for the rest of your life? Hilarious. Like, it's just like they've got the hypocrisy right in front of you. It's like, like, you're just resigned to your fate. You're just going to sit there and have fucking, they, they literally eat with one of their, like, imprisoners and just do nothing about it, which is amazing. It's amazing. It's fucking perfect. The sixth course is, um, like I said earlier, the main course, right? And uh, it's already been introduced. It was that whole story I told a couple minutes ago. That's pretty funny. And the sixth course is called Man's Folly. It is Dungeness crab, fermented yogurt whey, dried sea lettuce, Umaboshi, and kelp. Ladies get to eat first, and men go for a run. The sixth course is the most disgusting looking menu item that they serve in the entirety of this thing. And unironically, I think if you ate it in real life too, it would taste horrible. Literally not good. So like we're breaking it down, I didn't know what umeboshi is. It's a Japanese um, type of fermented pickle thing. So they're tiny or, or no, no, sorry. I don't know if they're necessarily fermented, but they're sour as fuck. So they're little sour balls. So in the in the do, the dish called men's man's folly is a bunch of little sour balls. Wonderful. And fermented yogurt whey. Um uh, fermented yogurt whey put in like this is uh fermented and full of bubbles. This thing, and I don't know if it's intentional or not. I know it's a, a there's a lot of different intentions to this dish, but to me, it looks like a piss that you would take after a long night of drinking. And I am not, I am not, uh, mincing words or being exaggerative. If you've, if you're any dude knows what I'm talking about, Uh, women, maybe not quite as much because you don't stare at it, you know, while, while you're fucking doing it. But if you take a fucking big ass piss the day after you drink a bunch, um, you get all these gigantic fucking white frothy bubbles. It's gross looking, right? It's a toilet. This meal looks like that. And if we go over the stuff that's in it, fermented yogurt way. So it's already yogurt. So it's going to be better. They didn't say that they fucking seasoned it. And there's no reason why. That's why it's all bubbly. So this is, it's, it's fermented. So it's extra sour. It's going to be extra sour. You've got sour ball, umeboshi. So it's this sour vinegary, maybe just lightly yogurty froth. The Dungeness crab. You can't even see. So I have to assume that it's just underneath this um, dried sea lettuce is whatever. And kelp is also, if it's, if it's actually like um, served straight, it's just going to be slimy and a little bit chewy. Kelp is served with vinegar sometimes. So this might just be a foul, pissy tasting, piss looking uh, dish where the crab is like almost non-existent. I, I have the picture and I cannot see where the crab pieces are unless it's turned into fucking foam with everything else. Uh, I, so I, I just, on the thing, I was just like, well, let's, let's like, did they have more hidden in here? What is a Dungeness crab and fucking goddamn it. So I look up Dungeness crabs because I'm, I don't know what the fuck they are. I've heard the name before, but I do not, I do not eat sea food. Uh, I, I don't eat, um, shellfish if I can avoid it I, I'm not a big fan of it my wife loves fucking shellfish so uh, Dungeness Crab's entire mating ritual and I looked this up revolves around piss the males are attracted to females through urine pheromones so the, the female pees and the male can smell her pheromones for mating um, and then when he finds her the male holds the female in a mating embrace for several days uh, before a urine signal is sent And the female signals that readiness to mate by peeing on or near the male's antenna. (laughs) It probably tastes like piss. It looks like piss and it's after a fucking, it's called man's folly. And it's, it's the, the main protein in it is a crab that mates via peeing like if it's not intentional, by what providence do you get so lucky that all of these things work? That's fucking hilarious. It, the fuck! It's a piss dish. <laughs> to a degree, um, I think you can also say that it might be um, supposed to look like uh, spore. You know, like those bubbles that crabs blow, and it holds their little eggs in and stuff. You can also say that it looks like that, which is just extra disgusting because it's big sperm balls in the first place. That's just like nut and eggs. That's disgusting. That's what you fucking put the fucking dish over. It's so gross. Oh, and it just does not look good. Uh, If you're wondering what Dungeness meat, uh, crab meat tastes like, apparently it's lightly sweet uh, compared to the bitter, sour compliments to the dish. Um, And I really, I don't think any of the women eat it. I don't think any of them have, any of it. They're, they're mostly just drinking and talking about it. Um, during this scene, you see the, uh, the reporter, uh, reviewer lady trying to convince, um, the same woman that stabbed the cook, who's the other sous chef. Uh, this is actually her dish that she put together as opposed to the mess from earlier. And, uh, you see her trying to convince her like, oh, you know, if you ever wanted your own place, I could help you, but we have to do something about the, you know, dying thing. And the, the woman just looks at her and she says, Oh, everyone dying was my pitch. Like I wanted that to happen. <laughs> oh my God. And so they just all keep drinking and stuff. And so that's the, uh, that's the, that's the penultimate dish, which I don't think you really see anybody eating. I can't imagine anyone has any appetite, but I'm pretty sure that the, um, magazine assistant, um, had his, he helped himself to the Passard egg. I know I would. So this all brings us to my favorite part of the movie. We are um, we're, we're rapidly approaching the end here, uh, not necessarily of this, of this episode. No, 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 friends. We've still had some time to go. But uh, as far as the movie goes, we're in the last like 40 minutes of the film, which really which really clipped by. Um, like I said before, this is an hour and like almost 50 minute movie, I think, and um, it doesn't feel like it. it, it's, it it's pretty,, uh, it moves pretty consistently like i said earlier it has that play energy you know where um if it, when it's good it really just feels like you're just you're experiencing it and there's there's always stuff to look at and and, and things going on which is great but we do get to my favorite part tyler the douchebag, makes an admission that he knew everybody would die the whole time okay <laughs> um, this is more um uh, this this comes out as more of a attempt by the chef to shake the protagonist uh Anya Taylor-Joy's character which works it works splendidly um we find out that Tyler if we didn't already know was a massive super massive fanboy of the chef he is just a a perpetual ass-kisser he loves the chef he loves everything he's done He studied all of his work which kind of explains the bergamot thing earlier in the whole Paco Jet and all that other nonsense so um, the chef's talking to him, and he says, "So we've been emailing, right? And he said, Yes, and I told you everyone would die. And he says, "Yes, chef. <laughs> and you, you knew everyone was going to come here, and they were all, we were all going to die. Everyone's going to die. But you had to come here. You wanted the experience. He goes, "Yes, chef, I, I really did. But you're your plus one at the time, your girlfriend broke up with you, and he's like, Yes, so you invited her the protagonist girl and he says yes because because hawthorne doesn't provide seating uh for singles like it is no you have to have somebody with you uh to sit at uh at hawthorne which also isn't true (laughs) because his mom sits alone in the corner um It's just amazing. And so she finds out that not only did he know, he invited her or brought her along. He paid her to come. Uh, We find out right around here that the uh, protagonist is a prostitute. She is uh, a working girl and um, he paid her to uh, accompany him to this thing. She also knows, as I mentioned slightly before, the uh, rich old white guy at the next table over um, because she's actually dated him before. Uh, in a paid way, he has her talk about his, he, I, I, I think, I can't remember exactly what it is. It, it's a little tawdry detail, but, uh, basically she looks like his daughter who's either gone or like dead or something in a, in a tragic way. Uh, and the guy's always just like, let's just move on from that talk kind of blah, blah, blah. blah. But she looks like his daughter and she, like, he made her, uh, like he jerked off in front of her and stuff and like gave her and she had to give him a hand job. So that's like, well, he like talked to her about stuff. And so that's, that's wild. You know what I mean? so the, the rich lady at this point is shit faced from, uh, just drinking wine earlier and is also like, I fucking hate my My, my husband is just like, you were, you're cheating on me and prostitutes. And, um, I think I mentioned earlier that he was had all those pictures of him with the women at the restaurant. And it's, you find out very obviously that it was, uh, fucking the chef's old restaurant. It's not some clever PI, the chef, that guy just came in all the time. And the chef or one of his, uh, workers just kept taking pictures of that dipshit with the prostitutes. He brought to her fucking rest his restaurant over and over again. He's not clever. He's just a fucking dickhead. But we, from there, we get to the best part. So, um, the to really step things up, and I can't remember exactly why this happens, but the chef um invites Tyler. He says, No, you're, you're a smart boy. You're you're very smart. You love cooking, and blah 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 blah. And he starts buttering him up and saying, You knew you should cook. You're so smart, you know everything. I think a lot of it's also just because he's offended by him, and uh Tyler thinks that he can do what the chefs do. And so that is, as I said earlier. One of the real insults to uh, um, the chef is any any diminishment of, of his craft because it is all he is. He's not even really a person in his own eyes. He is the idea of himself as this uh, as this chef, and so he starts getting um, Tyler all fucking buttered up. He says, "You knew what a Paco jet is," and uh, he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew I knew what a Paco jet is." And they go in. And so this is the beginning of the great fucking joke. Okay. So right after this, um, he gets Tyler to start cooking in the rest in, in the back. He said he, he puts a little chef's jacket on him and writes his name on it um, in, in big block letters with a Sharpie and then puts a period at the end, which is just hilarious and demeaning. Like your chef's jacket should either have your name embroidered on it or it shouldn't say anything at all. And you put a pin on it. Um, because they go through the wash and stuff. And so just having a name drawn on a chef jacket like that with magic marker is patentedly absurd. If you wore that in any real kitchen, uh you would it, if you wore it in just on purpose and just showed up like that, you would get kicked out, or they just make you take the jacket off and throw it away, uh, because it's it's useless now. Or I mean you would just get ruthlessly just absolutely fucking murdered by everybody else because that's a so stupid looking. Um but we get to the Paco jet. So a Paco jet, I had to look this up because I didn't know what it was. And I, I'm always interested in, um, other items in a kitchen. It's rare that I see anything in, in a kitchen that like, I haven't heard of before to some degree. Um, most of the stuff, the tools that you run into, um, are at most variations of some standard, you know, you have you know, your basic chef's knife, but then you'll also have, like, you know, a paring knife. And then you'll also have like a boning knife and a sabaton and all, all sorts of other knives. Like, you know, but it's all, it's a knife. A knife is a knife and then it has more specifics. So, you know, but it's the utility and then the shape of it provides some additional thing going on. So it's rare that you you see um, any unique things really in most kitchens. And they're always for some specific type of food. And a Paco jet is something I have... Never fucking heard of in my life, and there's no reason I ever would have, and no reason you would ever. So, what a PacoJet is is an extremely expensive food processor that you can use to micro puree frozen items. Um, by expensive, I mean when I look them up online, the cheap one for like home use that you wouldn't use in a major kitchen like this because it won't produce volume is. 7500 dollars. The the kitchen version is there's a $15,000 one and I think like a $30 or $45,000 one. Buh, unacceptable. Oh my god. <laughs> that is that is uh, almost as expensive as a whole range. Like a whole stovetop range is like $7500 to 1500, which is the centerpiece of your kitchen. The literal workhorse of the kitchen is going to be 15 grand. You know what I mean? You base your entire operation around that one purchase to have a kitchen with something that is so specific and, uh, and small as a Paco jet is just, it's, it's wild. You know, that is only at the very tip tip top of it. But here's the thing. What you use a Jet for is when something's frozen, you keep, it stays frozen. So all those little melon ball things you've probably been seeing or I've been talking about the whole time um, are probably made with the PacoJet. Um, it, 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 if you freeze like a melon, right, or melon chunks, they'll have ice in them, obviously. I know that sounds stupid. But the ice will be in them instead of on them or beside them when you mix it up. So if you puree something with ice, what you make is like a slush, like a slushy, you know, but if you can, pure, pure, if you can puree something that is frozen, um, it will stay, uh, in, in a, in a sort of like, um, clumpy, like more like sleet, uh, shape. And, and, you know, depending on the, the, the texture and stuff, you can kind of keep those more delicate crystals intact, especially because it stays frozen, the way that the Pocket jet works is it keeps the canister cool. Um, so, I, you know, we've always been able to do stuff like that. Um, if you just roll a food processor, a steel-barreled food processor, into your freezer, um, you'll achieve the same thing pretty much. I, I don't see what would really change too much. You know, it's got an immersion blender head, but with that like that, you can have it out on top of a, of a work surface so that you don't have to have one of your people working out of the freezer, which is, you know, not ideal. Um, but the, the, um, freshly, the frozen seawater, purified frozen seawater ice slush that was probably made with the Paco jet, the melon balls. I think they actually got some serious use out of it. The milk snow that I described from earlier. Um, if I, if I understand how that was made, that might've actually been made with the Paco jet. So they might've been getting, uh, quite a bit of mileage out of it. Um, in some of these dishes, uh, but still not. Still, I I, I don't, I don't know if you'll ever break even on that purchase (laughs) because it just doesn't make that much, even though it costs so much to have. But the thing is, is what it makes is purees, minces, or, and then I read it up on this and I realized it makes farces. Now, what, Tyler, what do you mean it makes farces? And I know this because I read a bunch of fucking escaffi. I got an Escoffier cookbook. So farce is the traditional cooking word for force meat. Uh, meat that's literally forced traditionally through a grinder. Um, sausages, uh, you know, well, <laughs> sausages, minces, uh, and burger. Burger is a fucking, is a farce. Um, farce is a word for force meat. And obviously farce is also... A comedic, a a word for in in acting and playing stuff like, uh, I'm sorry. In stage play, it's a comic dramatic piece that also uses highly improbable situations, stereotyped characters, extravagant exaggeration, and violent horseplay. The menu is a farce about a farce. Resolved ultimately by a farce A cheeseburger which I'll get to In a bit but here's Here's how fucking good this is So I've already established Tyler Knows that Tonight this night is going to be A farce you were invited Here by this Guy for a meal but instead It's it's it, that that's that's a farce It's a lie it's a it's an exaggeration What you're actually coming here Is for this farce of a dinner that's going to end in everybody dead Um, Tyler knows what a Paco jet Paco jet is. It's the thing that makes a farce. He talks to fucking sous chef, Jeremy, who also knows he, and and confirms is, Hey, that's a Paco jet, isn't it? Yes, that is a Paco jet. That is the thing that makes a farce. Jeremy can't talk about it too much. He's a little distracted because he's working on the night's fucking meals (laughs) <laughs> he's literally preparing for the farce. Um, that's so dumb. <laughs> he confirms the farce making implement with sous chef Jeremy at the very beginning. Jeremy's distracted. He is literally has a farce on his mind, which he later proves by turning his brain into mincemeat, creating a farce that nobody eats because nobody eats the fucking food. <laughs> he's overdone. So we get into Tyler's part and Tyler, on the other hand, isn't ready to be a chef yet. The the, the chef brings him up and has him trying to make a meal in front of everybody. And he scurries around chopping shit, you know, uh, wildly. And he ends up trying to make a a butter sauce with leek and uh, shallots. Um, It's just absolute insanity. Absolute insanity. Um and puts a undercooked lamb chop in it, like literal, like a literal tomahawk lamb chop. It's a like big, that's a fucking costly cut of meat. Um and so he he does this and he messes around and his whole thing was that I know what's going on and I I can be a part of this. I can be, I can be part of the farce. But in doing so, he puts on a farce of cooking. So he is farcically trying to go through the motions and make a good meal. What he ends up making is a fucking mess, just like sous chef Jeremy, who is very similar to him trying to impress the chef. He also tries to impress the chef and makes a mess. He makes the mess, which has an utter lack of cohesion, uh, as it says in, in the Tyler's bullshit card. They actually make a little title card for it. Uh, So, (laughs) so the, the chef gets in his head and starts whispering and Tyler takes off his jacket and kills himself too. So he's literally just a different version of Jeremy. Both of them had a farce on the brain. Jeremy's was overdone and no one ate it. It got blown out the back of his fucking head. Tyler, who is not ready, he's undercooked instead of overcooked. Even his food is undercooked. It's not pressure cooked. It's undercooked. He goes and hangs himself the same way they hang up the fucking meat that they grind up for burgers. <laughs> Did they show you at the very beginning? He hangs himself up just like a fucking cut of meat to dry. And like, I know that might be reaching to a degree, but it just, it's just, it's fucking constantly reinforced. It's a farce inside of a farce inside of a farce. Um... As we continue, and I'm going to try to move on to the clip here, but we, we start. It is a farce to get the people on the island. They're not going to actually eat there. Um, the we find out <laughs> when the actor asks um, the when when the actor asks the uh, the chef, why am I here? Why are you going to kill me? The actor was lying first off about knowing the chef earlier, which is one of the reasons he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're friends. We're like we're cool. Like I, I talked to him at one point." But he was just cloud chasing. He was like literally a farcical. Um, but the reason that the chef says he doesn't like him is because he was in a terrible movie, a literal farce and went to go and watch it. The chef went to go watch it on his one day off on a Sunday and, uh, was sitting in the movie theater and the actor's portrayal in the movie, his acting was so bad. And, and the movie was so terrible that him being in it made the, the, the chef feel an uncomfortable amount of uh connection with him he says it made me it it, like i like i it was i was disgusted by how much of like basically like a whore you were you know you you were you were you're you're literally being farcical and it made him feel like a farce because the chef his entire facade is farcical he pretends to be this uh, this gigantic towering figure who, who, who is, his is, is the last, the first and last, uh, word in taste, but he almost shatters over just a random prostitute, not wanting to eat his stupid rock with a fucking, uh, a a fucking, um, mollusk on top of it, whatever the hell the goddamn called, um, it's he 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 continues with these like these additional the whole thing it's a farce inside of a farce this it's all farcical there's a number of farces that he puts on the angel investor being drowned like literally when a restaurant fails it goes under and so he had his angel investor literally go under the water like he's drowning <laughs> i'm drowning in debt oh, he's drowning literally in the fucking ocean <laughs> the meals many of the meals are farcical allusions to things that are going on like the fucking Island being put together. And it's just like, it's a layer on top of a layer on top of a layer, just like the fucking uh, chef himself. And it's all, it's all bullshit, which is what you say. That's, uh, this is a bullshit. This, this is a fucking farce. It's bullshit. And the only person ever sees it is our protagonist and She's the only one that calls for it. So I will get to this in a second. And it's, it's perfect. Uh, In between this, uh, I told you why the um, actor says that he's going to be um, killed. But the girl that's with him asks, you know, what, what about me? I I don't want to be in here. Um, Are you going to kill me as well? And he goes, where'd you go to school? (laughs) And She says, Brown student loans. She says no, he says sorry, you're dying. <laughs> fucking based, dude. <laughs> oh my god. Um so uh the, the the chef's big thing, right? And we'll we'll get into his his final um articulating his final understanding of stuff before we kind of read the rest of the plot out. Um, and I, and I go back and start saying farce over and over and over again is that he believes that there are two classes of people, eaters and makers, right? Are you an eater or are you a creator or a maker? Are you a cook? Do you make stuff or do you consume things? So like literally this is fucking, uh, socialist theory. This is literal Marxism. It's fat, uh, false class consciousness, And the danger of false class consciousness and, like, uh, creating a fake identity, a fake uh, version of class, you know. So the chef thinks he is aware of his class. He believes he is um, a creator, a laborer, you know, like these people. But he's very clearly not. He's very much a member of the petite bourgeois. He owns a restaurant. Even if it got partially bailed out, he still owns stuff. People work for him, his intellectual property is something that he exploits to his own benefit, whereas he also has to exploit the labor of the people underneath him in order to keep his business up. They are not equal to him. That is not class. It is very definitively not class consciousness. He claps and they respond. He is literally in a class above them. It is There is very much a separation, which is why I delineated earlier um, the very clear and very obvious separations between our uh, our pseudo chorus of chefs, our our intermediacy of him and his immediate party, so to say, and the um the 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 true bourgeois of the uh, of the diner class, you know, and so. Um, he articulates this that uh, there are people that make stuff and people that eat stuff, and the people that eat stuff should be destroyed. They're, they, they, they're fucking. They're, they're the worst. They're absolutely awful. Which, hey, fucking, I agree. There, there, there shouldn't be a bourgeois. Fuck, proletarian revolution. Fuck yeah, let's do it. But he doesn't have the class consciousness to understand that he's just leading everybody off a cliff, which he literally does. He literally leads his people to death. There is nothing articulated in. His entire philosophy that justifies killing his staff. He never even tries to do it. He's just like, everyone here is ready for this tonight, but there is no materialist justification for any of these aims. None of this makes any fucking sense. And even uh, the, the the main character, the pro- the protagonist, she says like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like this doesn't, I don't, I don't really think that I'm one of you guys. And this is a thing that you're seeing. You know, start to become part of the, non, the, the the national conversation now is that there are people who are just like, oh, yeah, this capitalist class, these people are really just a drain. They are horrible. Um, but all of the reasons that they're articulating for these these capitalists being bad are not reasons why the capitalists are actually bad. They're just personal failings of rich people. None of the rich people that are there basically deserve to die for any of the reasons that are given you're killing the actor for being in a bad movie. You're killing the other girl for going to Brown and not having student loans, which, you know, Hey, it's funny as fuck because it's part of a fucking comedy, but that's literally not good enough reason. The three finance bros are the closest that you can get. Um, Tyler definitely deserves to die uh, only because he's literally co-conspirator to a fucking murder that you're going to do. Um, but the, the the main character, the protagonist doesn't deserve to die at all and shouldn't even be there. The two rich white people, I mean, they're rich and they're white, but that's literally their only sins. The wife didn't do anything. She, she doesn't do anything. The reason he gives for killing her husband Who's already been had his finger cut off isn't even the philandering it's not it's not even anything to do with the one moral failing that's brought up during the course of the dinner It's just because every time he came to eat at hawthorne he he didn't pay attention to what he was eating he just ignored it he just ate there because he was rich he's literally just a good customer that's his sin he's a good customer. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, the reviewer, she's a bitch. I fucking hate her. Like, I wouldn't give a fuck if she died, but she didn't do anything wrong. She just reviewed restaurants, really, really upper class restaurants too. the only kind that are actually like susceptible to bad reviews like that. Um, and then her, her plus one is just her plus one. Like he's maybe the closest one of any of the people that came with somebody as a facilitator because he pays her to do stuff. If anything, them dying is the only one that makes sense. The thing is, he's not trying to kill people because he gives a fuck about class. He only cares about himself. He doesn't give a shit about his workers. He treats them like his own personal army of unpaid pseudo-slaves, one of which he tries to fuck, and then he feels bad about that only because only because he gets fucking caught out and it's going to be an it's going to be a danger to the amount of respect and esteem that's paid to him everybody that's being punished isn't being punished because of some some fucking idea of class warfare they're being punished just because they got on his bad sides cuz he's a little shitty baby person he's a little fucking pussy dude he is such a little bitch and, and Ray finds plays him perfectly. He's just so fucking good. And you really see it. Um I'll get I'll get into this right now. So uh right around at this point, um, the protagonist finally kind of really becomes an actual character instead of just somebody that's sort of uh reacting to the events of the movie and that we can kind of um you know project ourselves onto as, as she goes from being the hapless girlfriend of this dude to this unfortunate prostitute thrown into this absolutely absurd like world. Um, He even, the, the chef even tries to commiserate with her and say that we're both whores really and she just gives him a look like she's like, like, I sucked dicks for money. And you're like a multi-millionaire with your own island. <laughs> you can just see it in her look. Anya Taylor Joy, I can say, is is great in this role. She she doesn't get too much to do. She really doesn't drive the action um, until her moments at the end. But she is very participatory in all of her scenes and her reactions are great that um, it feels really earned when you get to it. She doesn't seem like she's forgotten Um, and and she does a really good job. It, It would be, it would be a part that is impossible to play for somebody with less understanding of like acting and like how the narrative works. Because if there was somebody in there that was just like, this is my moment to shine, they would have probably fucked everything up, but she's really good at being part of the cast until it's until it's time for her to be a star which isn't until the end and it's great it's really a moment and it it not only is it really a moment it's literally articulated by her stealing the chef's dick but I'll get to that in a second not not literally i'm literally metaphorically never mind so anyway he tries to like commiserate with her and be like so you know you you're you're basically like on a kind of timer are you with us or against us because basically you're not even choosing Uh, You're not even choosing whether or not you can die. I've already just decided that all of my employees are going to be getting murdered tonight uh, along with me, but that you can also uh, you can just die with the right kind of people instead of the wrong kind of people, whatever that might mean Um, because I don't know how they're going to die yet. Although there's been some insinuations as to it uh, kind of tucked in through the movie. Don't think that just because I talked about this shit for almost three hours straight, that uh i've 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 said everything that must be said about the menu. This movie's fucking great and there's even more shit i probably missed. I could i could watch through and take notes and it would be it would be money. But um so yeah, so he he sends her on a a little errand, so to say, to get this barrel for a thing. This is the most um this is the only part of the movie that doesn't really work as well as the rest of the film it's a it's an odd diversion and so um she goes to his house basically she's supposed to go to a shed and get a barrel but instead she goes to his house to try to find you know anything which is great because obviously the secret chef house up on the hill obviously you want to go to that um and there is a there's an interesting parallel drawn between uh well there's a direct parallel drawn between his house and the place where they eat, but also, um, uh, another one, I, 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 really wish I could lit, look at the sets a little bit more, but I'll, uh, I'll take a step back and describe it. Um, the path. So when, when you come into this dining room, if, as you're looking at it, it comes from stage left and there's a very large square 10 by 10 foot hallway, uh, you know, vertical to horizontal by, and then well, whatever, like 40 feet long, um, to the right of, or, or further back, I guess, towards the kitchen is a long hallway to the left, uh, normal-shaped hallway that leads to the bathrooms. But then also there is a uh, like a fancy silverish door there that she looks at um, and doesn't use, right? And I believe so. I, I might be getting a little confused, but she doesn't open that one inside the normal restaurant. Somebody says, like, don't, don't open that. Um, You can't like, that's not for, that's not for guests. I believe it's the Mater D um, who comes out of nowhere. She, you know, very sneaky, sneaky Mater D. Um, But when she goes to the other place, his actual home, that's the separate building. His home is literally just the kitchen. Again, it's the entire set repurposed, which would be, it just, it's like, this was written by somebody who understands plays. Like somebody wrote a play called the menu and then they were like, let's make a movie. Because it's got it just has that vibe where it is the uh, the dark half of the set, and so it's the, the 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 kitchen area is I believe empty or at least just picked up, or the dining room area. Um, the kitchen area is obviously clean and unused. Everything's kind of set up, and there are like little um, uh, little pots of herbs growing, you know, and stuff. And it, this is normally the part where you would. Delve into some like deep macabre shit, you know, in most other films, but they really play this one um, fairly straightforward and there is no there's no magic and there's no mystery, which I think is even better to the final like kind of like getting who the chef is and that is there is a vibe. There's all of these like sort of signs and uh, there's this intensity in in the the atmosphere and stuff. But it really is all fake. And so when she gets in there, there is no macabre revelation. Um, she just goes in there and finds his his room. Now, before that or after that, I can't really remember, but my least favorite scene in the movie happens, and I do have to say that this kind of came out of nowhere and was unfortunate and unnecessary. Like, if there was a director's cut and you wanted to make this movie 10 minutes shorter, you could get rid of this and nothing would change. Um the mater d follows uh Anya Taylor-Joy's character in there and for some reason and this is very character break character character breaking um she kind of loses her cool which has been her like main asset as a as a character and as an individual in in the narrative the uh the mater d and she picks up a that's a boning knife she picks up a boning knife and starts swiping at swiping at her and being like, you will not replace me. Like you're not going to replace me next to him. Blah, 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 blah. Which, I mean, I guess maybe it's the idea that the maitre D just wants to die next to this chef. And so in trying to do so kind of failed, but it's also not really well articulated through, um, Hong Chao's uh, few moments where she really gets to shine as an individual character, Throughout it, it doesn't really jive with me. I might have missed something, but it doesn't jive with me. It doesn't jive with the the nature of the, the show. And it creates an, a minor action set piece that is wholly unnecessary and does nothing for either of their characters. Both women sort of scrabble around the altar version, the alternate version of the restaurant's kitchen area. And um, they throw some shit at each other. There's a very clumsy, I think really not well choreographed fight. I think they were just like, it was a, they fight. And I don't know. I would say if I had to guess the actresses hearts probably weren't in it because they knew maybe even a little bit that they were like, this is, why the fuck am I fighting this character? And the other character's like, why the fuck am I trying to kill you? I, I could just kill you. Like, In any way, like she works in a kitchen. She could just fucking like stab her at the tape. She could do anything and they're all going to die eventually anyway. But so it doesn't really, it doesn't really make any sense. But um, Hong Chao's character, the Mater D dies, knife in the neck. She's bleeding to death. It is what it is. So um, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, the protagonist goes into the silver door on this, in this alternate kitchen and it is the chef's room, which is very Spartan and set up. And you get all of the character background that you'll ever need about him. And it really is perfect. Um, it, it, there's, no, there's no great revelation. Um, there, there's a sort of jokey, fun thing because it's a farce anyway. Like I know I've said it a million times. But uh, uh, you see all of his pictures from the most recent uh, going back, um, you see him at Hawthorne with the angel investor who got drowned, and everybody. And he's always got this really like uh, angry, distasteful look on his face. It's Ray Fiennes, putting on you know the Ray Fiennes face. Uh, if you don't know what he looks like in your mind, it's Voldemort, by the way. I don't know if I said that. He's the guy that plays fucking Voldemort in Harry Potter. Imagine him with a nose and a little bit of fucking color to his skin, and and that's Ray Fiennes. So he's got a very dour expression. And um, in all these pictures, he's got that kind of modeling look, you know, Um, not just he's like grumpy and unhappy, but really he is putting on the stank face for his photos because he's becoming this celebrity chef and you're seeing him being unraveled in time up until you see his original job, his first cooking job where he won um, employee of the month at hamburger Howie's at the ripe old age of like 19 and he's grinning and he's got a big old fat American quarter pounder on a, on a, on a steel griddle spatula. And he, he just, he's, he's, he's beaming. Um, and, and she's just like, what the fuck? You know? And then she uses a radio that's in there to put out a distress call, um, to the coast guard or whoever can hear her. And you get one of those, it's not, I can't hear you. Oh, uh, well, we trying to come by. You know, one of that it's that shit, um, and then she goes back. So uh, I want to take a, a minute to stop and talk about a little bit more about the chef's farcical nature. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but Ray Fine sounds like Ray Fiennes. Um He doesn't sound super duper British in this. You know, he's not. Oh, I ate my fucking what? He that's that's Australian, but. Um, he 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 sounds uh, not American. He doesn't sound American at all. Maybe he's supposed to, but he sounds like uh, like a British person with a sort of Americanized accent. You know, um, and th- there's no way that you would see him talking and ever say that's a, an American, like a, a normal American. Like this is definitely some guy from. He's definitely like English, if not some other form of like northern european he's got that weird vibe to him and stuff ray fines really is that person but i think diegetically in the narrative motherfu the chef is has motherfucking put on that persona and there's nothing there's nothing to prove other that that's otherwise he worked at hamburger howie's it says it's in like Fucking uh, Nebraska or some shit. It's a middle America. And he has created a persona around himself to become like a Ray Fines. That's fake. His accent is fake. Even though it's real, he lives in a fucking imaginary version of himself that sounds like that. He there's no one from fucking the middle of America that has an accent approaching the way that Ray Fine sounds. Not even close, not even when they're fucking trying. All right. I've been there. I lived in fucking North Dakota. I've talked to a million goddamn oil workers, and every one of them is from a strip from fucking the 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 the, the rotten coast of Texas straight up through the middle of like America. I've I've heard every fucking accent that exists in this country when I was in the Marine Corps and at other times. People do not sound like Ray Fines. He is faking it and that little thing those little slides are proof of it dude it is perfect i i deny you that any of it's not and you can see parts of that guy coming through which you see in one of the upcoming scenes so um we have one last uh farce actually at the end and it is it literally just a farce put on uh, by the kitchen staff, um, Anya Taylor Joy, her character, the protagonist, returns to her table, which is now a table for one. Uh, apparently, they do allow singular seating at uh, at Hawthorne if the other person that you know in the restaurant is a sociopath. So, um, her and the chef's mom both get to eat alone. <laughs> um, wh- after she arrives. There is like a flashing lights or something and there's a knock and someone comes in and it's a guy in a coast guard uniform of be a coast guard officer of some sort. And he says, Hey, we got a distress thing. And every, and, and, uh, the chef does a big show of, all right, everybody, everybody, get, get, get into places, get in your places. And like, um, you know, behave like basically like you're all in trouble. Like watch yourself. This is, uh, and he, like, you don't want to see somebody else die here tonight behave yourselves kind of thing. And so they all do. Um, and the guy comes in and he talks to the, and like, if this isn't just, this is just obvious. The guy who's, he comes in, he's a coast guard officer and he talks to John Leguizamo's character, the failed actor. Um, and is like, Oh, Hey, Hey, wait, aren't you like after he says like, I guess everything's okay. He says, and he, and, and John Leguizamo's like, yes, 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 it's me. It's me. Yes. Yes. And he, I don't think he even says his name. um, actually yeah they don't say his name i think oh my god um which is that's extra funny uh then the chef is just like oh would you like his autograph and the guy's like do you think i could and then he walks over and like you know something sort of happens uh they 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 trigger and he pulls out a gun and he goes all right what's going on here what the fuck is going on here? Blah 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 blah. And everyone's like, "Oh no no no!" And like uh, Anya Taylor Joy's character starting to get excited. She's like, "Fuck, we might be getting saved." And then he comes over and he points the gun at her, and she's like, "Wait, what?" And then he lowers it to a candle. Click. The gun is a fucking lighter, and everybody laughs. And the fucking chef and like some of the people in the back applaud. And he's the, the Coast Guard guy goes, "Ha ha!" They literally in inside this farce of a farce of a farce. It's full of farces. They have another one for no reason. The guy in the uniform is one of the line cooks. He has been in the back of the house the entire fucking time. And he's back there again into the end of it. If you paid enough attention to the people that were cooking your food, you could have told that he was like not one of the guys. But he is. And that's just that's just butter. That's just fucking amazing. But of all of the people that come in to point out the obvious, the, uh, it, in the middle of the goofy farce, the guy that's running it, of all the people to point out, he points out the failed actor. It's 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 literally just again and again and again. Like you can almost feel the people that wrote this giggling like fucking schoolgirls while they're putting this shit together. Just. Bleh. <laughs> It, it, it's. I love it. I feel like I'm fucking in on the joke. You know what I mean? And it is just. It fuck. It's so great. So, um, we do have one unmarked course during this time, uh, and it's it's pretty funny. The, um, the 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 finance bros have told one of their friends uh, had told them at the beginning of the night the the, the chef and the maitre d or whatever that um, it was one of the guy's birthday. And so they make a cake for him and bring out the cake <laughs> and it's happy birthday to you. Like they do the whole thing and it's a really nice looking cake. I don't think they ever uh, bite into it at all. Um, and it's just, that's just fucking hilarious. The scene literally cuts to that. I think it's immediately after uh, the protagonist kills um, the Mater D, which is just, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And so we're, we're, we're left with little to do from this point on, but to, uh, bring, bring this into a resolution. I know we've all been, we've been here for a minute. Um, the farce is resolved with a farce, which is the stupidest fucking most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. So, um, our protagonist, finally, she comes to uh a realization during the the ends of this right when i I think it might even be just the kind of like the 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 guy um the coast guard farce that guy kind of coming in maybe that's what gives her the idea but in, in any case she kind of snaps and she really does become her own character like in that moment before she's been basically reacting to stuff and kind of just trying to like Sneak around the action of the plot in order to survive, which is completely reasonable given her character. And I think that's 100 percent fine. Perfect. Um, But every time that they've introduced a new course, there has been a big slap slap. And then all of the little people in the thing and they do their little uh, their little they all the chefs and stuff. They goose step and form little lines and stuff like a little like a little military cadre. It's really quite absurd and uh, funny. She does it and they do it. They react to it. Clap, clap. And they and like the the uh, chef looks at her and you get to see that that wounded, horrified look in his eyes. He, huh? And she says, I want to lodge a logic complaint. And he's like, what? And the whole time she's talking for every other time in this, he's big voice. This is what we're doing. This is this, blah, 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 blah. Da, 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 da. Our next course is this thing blah, blah, blah. salt, fat, sugar. And he's got that very, uh, real stentorian vibe to him. But when she starts complaining, his eyes are like saucers and his, his like shoulders don't droop, but he shrinks a little bit. And like, he, he looks like he's gonna start sweating out of his fucking eyeballs. It's perfect. What? She says, I don't like what I I don't like any of this and I want to send it back. And he's just like, no one sends anything back at Hawthorne. And so she figures him out. And like, this is the biggest confirmation that I am fucking right. She, she gets, she's the only person that has a conversation with the real chef in the entire thing. Scalds him. The second his reputation is put on the line, he, crumbles. He's like, he's backed into a corner. He's really quite got his claws out still, you know, but, um, she gets him and she says, I want to send my food back. I'm hungry. I'm still hungry. And he goes, well, that's not, um, that's not like, uh, okay. And she goes like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't like your cooking. And like, it's like, Whoa. And nobody else in the, everyone in the restaurant's like, Oh my God, what, what if he reacts violently? But even she f- came to the realization, that if we're all going to die, then why am I being polite? I need to lodge a complaint. <laughs> it's so obvious. And, and a real complaint, too. Not like working up to it. Just like literally just an, an assault against him. And um, he asks what she wants. And she says a cheeseburger. And he's fucking like, oh. <laughs> and you can tell he's kind of happy about it. All of his speeches and all of his fucking uh, aggrandizing really does boil back to the original ones, which is I, I in his heart, he's trying to maybe even like make a plea for people to kind of understand where he's coming from. And it's literally like, I just want you to taste the food that I'm eating. Um, I don't want you to eat it. I want you to savor it. But there's a part in that speech and in, in the one to follow about common bread and all of these other ones being good. Um, but you're not great, you know, and you hate this life that you've built for yourself. All of these speeches are speeches about him. He's the one that doesn't break bread with the common man anymore. He's the one that doesn't taste anymore, he doesn't chew, he cooks without love, which is what she actually accuses him of. He goes, Everything in Hawthorne's made with love. And she says it, it, it's made with obsession. You're obsessed. And it's true. And you know the mess—the real mess—is the mess that he's making. He's got a—he's fu- got one of his customers is bleeding. One of his sous chefs is shot. He's been stabbed in the leg by his other sous chef. Um, his mater D is dead somewhere, and no one even realizes. before the end of the movie, that she's just fucking gone—a barrel that he needed for his, his everything's—it's fu- fucking chaos. It's absolutely insane, you know the man's folly is the most direct thing like and it's it's really like if you get to the penultimate thing and you say this is the man's folly deal it's that is your inability like the, 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 you didn't get it your man's folly dish is disgusting you you didn't fucking figure out what you did wrong all of them are about the whole meal the whole fucking menu is about him failing in every single conceivable way to himself and not getting it or if he does get it ignoring that he should be understanding it more than he does and you can see him figuring it the fuck out and even uh, the protagonist maybe understanding it a lot more or to a, a better degree, you know, there was and it's, it's the island uh, dish. Is really one of the ones that most um, kind of puts things into perspective, and and it's this uh, one of the main philosophy chunks that's here, and that's everything that you need to live is like on this island, you know, like the like nature provides and stuff. So why do you need such insane tools? Uh, why like a Paco Jet is just absolutely fucking mad, absolutely insane, um, you know, and and all of these um, specialized tricks and these little melon balls and burnt lace and blah, 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 when you could have just had bread and meat and, you know, done it better. And so what she orders is a fucking cheeseburger, which is the most, it's the best possible meal on earth. And I I will get into cheeseburgers. You're getting, you're going to get fucking diatribed. I already did this speech once and I'm fucking about it and I'm going to do it again here in a bit, but she orders a cheeseburger from him and they have a little back and forth. And he's like, what kind of cheese do you want on it? And she says, American, he goes, American cheese is perfect for a cheeseburger because American cheese melts without breaking like an emulsion because American cheese is an emulsion. (laughs) Uh, So it does. It melts really clean. Um, Although it's shitty, shitty cheap American cheese is emulsion. Some of the nicer American cheese is just a really, really, really mild cheddar. Um, but I digress. Uh, he makes her a cheeseburger. And um, it's a double cheeseburger. He puts it together, smash burger, a little bit of lettuce stuff on top. I think there's no bacon. Brings it to her. She takes a bite. She says, It's delicious. Unfortunately, I. My eyes were too big for my stomach, and I think I would like this to-go. He's like, to-go? Like, you just, what? And she says, yeah, uh, how much will that be? He's like $9.99. And she she pays him, and she gets a to-go bag and leaves, which is perfect because the entire thing, and I've said this a thousand times, and you guys are still with me here, I swear to God, is a farce. But once she starts playing along with it instead of being a victim of it, he has to play along, too, because it's all part of him not looking like an absolute dickhead. She just plays the game with him according to his rules and knows just a little bit enough about who he is to fucking absolutely get him. But the best part is, is that a cheeseburger is literally made out of force meat. It is a farce. A cheeseburger is a farce. If you went to a Michelin star restaurant and 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 ordered a cheeseburger when you had all of those seven dishes to eat from, people would say, "What are, are, are you making Is this a farce to you?" the 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 menu is a movie, which is a farce in and of itself. It is it is naturally farcical. It's a it's a, a horror uh, comedy. Um, about a bunch of people who, by a farce, are lured onto an island to engage in this dinner, which is uh, put on by a guy who is living in his own farce of an existence, who is constantly putting on additional farces during the dinner. <laughs> oh, my God. His, his... His fucking sous chef, who is being so overworked, has farce on the brain, blows his brains out. That's mint meat. The goddamn Paco Jet is a major talking point. Farce this, farce that. And then at the, at, the, at the very end, it's all resolved literally with a fucking farce. A goddamn cheeseburger is a fucking farce. And she eats it. She eats the farce he made and then says it's not that great and leaves she fucking leaves and then just lives. She just lives. She survives <laughs> because of a T-Go burger. Oh my fucking God, I love this movie. I fucking love this goddamn film so much. That's so fucking dumb. That's so unfair. How dare somebody write that? It, it, insane. I cannot be making this shit up. I literally can't. And if I am... Like, if I'm just putting this all together, by literally what divine providence do you have that many things working next to each other? That is absolutely fucking bullshit. It's so goddamn good. It's so good. And then once she leaves, he's like blown out. And he, uh, he, he, he introduces the last, the dessert course. So this is the last maybe eight minutes of the film. And dessert is a s'more. Um, which is the best thing. It's the literally the icing on the cake, which is the dessert of a seven-course meal, is him still not getting it even when she fucking showed him. Like, he just maintains course. So he calls the s'more. He says, it's everything wrong with us, and yet we associate it with innocence. Um, he describes a s'more as... Uh, unethically sourced chocolate uh, whipped sugar water, which is how you make a marshmallow. It's not necessarily that usually it's actually the honey is the best way to make marshmallow um, and industrial grade graham crackers. And you, you, you mash this, uh, you mash this obscenity together. And uh, the one thing that makes it all work fire and will be burned with fire and made anew. Um, and so he's going to kill everybody in there with fire and that will do something. <laughs> That will do something. (laughs) It's just fucking killing everybody for the fucking reason. The best part is the fucking, uh, the, the woman, the rich white woman is like by this point, just having a full psychological break. And she's looking at him like he's a fucking God and nodding at him and going, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and earlier he made a, a point of doing, uh, basically performing a small miracle. Almost. You would say it's like a, uh a thing you would see in a text he holds his hand over a flame he says asbestos fingers uh chef's hands um i can i can carry a cast iron uh from the oven all the way to your table which i you can't do that nobody's hands are good enough to carry a fucking cast iron 56 feet 450 degrees it will literally sear your whole goddamn hand off but uh I don't know. It's, prove me wrong. I don't know who is dumb enough to try to do that in real life, but I digress. Um he goes to he, he they everybody's arranged with these big um more like shawls and like chocolate fezes. It's they look absurd. They look so fucking dumb. They're literally it's literally farcical. They look like absolute morons and I love it. He spreads just graham crackers everywhere. So it's not even how you make a s'more, which is the best part. And that has to be the best because like you could have set the building on fire and collapsed it because the building is flat and actually like almost s'more shaped. And then it would have been like you squished and became a s'more. I don't know, but that would have just been more made more sense. But like, it's not even a knock. He's such a fucking well-established character that every shortcoming that exists within him seems intentional. And like I, I cannot stop reading into them. And so he grabs a, a, a charcoal from inside one of the stoves. And God only knows, I guess maybe that was what they were using to cook the uh, the bone marrow maybe. But also probably they just lit it for this exact moment. He carries it out. He drops it in this fucking the – the graham crackers are crushed into, like, dust and scattered around. And, like, the chefs go and pour out some, like, random weird sauces. You see that orange and um, green color again, I think? And I don't know. That might be referential to something. But it's really – they just plate – they plate the entire floor. And everybody just sits in there. There is nothing keeping you from trying to leave the place they they the guy comes out with a coal in his hand you if you sprint for the door right now just sprint for the door is he going to try to stop you and drag you back he's got a handful of charcoal he's going to drop it like they still just sit there it's fucking amazing um he drops it it catches on fire he turns into a little big fiery icon in the middle of this and the whole uh, the all the fucking yes chef and they all we love you chef they all turn on their fucking uh burners and the whole place explodes with uh, Anya Teller Joy outside enjoying her farce from a distance. Um, and then she literally wipes the menu or wipes her mouth with the menu, which is like the menu is a farce. She's eating the farce at the end of the menu, which is a farce. But then when she's done, she wipes her fucking mouth with the menu. That just eat shit, eat shit and fuck you. But I like it. I like it. Um, oh, one nod that's very funny is uh, everybody checks out at the end of the, of the meal. They all pay with their credit cards uh, and uh, they all get a gift bag and stuff, even though they're not going to leave. And um, the uh, rich white guy gets his own finger put in the uh, gift bag as an ancillary prize. Oh, my God. But it's just perfect. It's literally it's just perfect. Um, it's not a, a, a flawless film. And I, I would never, I, I don't think I would ever give a 10 to a, a quote unquote flawless film. But I will give a 10 out of 10 to this film because it is fucking perfect. Even its imperfections are wonderful. It's like a good cheeseburger. Like with like one little bit in it. And you're like, oh, I fucking had a bit in that cheeseburger. You just flick it away. I don't give a fuck. I'm eating a goddamn cheeseburger. And it- shut your fucking mouth. Shut your fucking mouth oh my god um yeah this movie's perfect it's perfect it's a fucking 10 it's a 10 performances it's a 10 editing and shooting it's a 10 writing it's a 10 10s across the board literally my favorite movie of the new year possibly i guess maybe one of my favorites of last year uh i guess it's when it's technically came out but i saw it this year so I, i don't know i don't know where to put it um fucking perfect like literally uh what else did I want to talk about? Yeah, farces, 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 farces. Like, I've got to try to make a TikTok or something about that because I think that shit will pop off. But, um, yeah, it's a farce resolved by a farce that, that's so stupid that it has to be intentional. And I fu- I'm i I'm happy about it. I'm really – I'm just – I feel like I'm along for the ride. Uh, let me talk about the bullshit of the chef's philosophy a little bit more And um, the dessert, how the dessert is the, you know, the final, the final little touchstone in this of him not getting it. Um, The s'more is just the dessert version of a hamburger. I mean, almost literally, it's all of the dessert pieces put together the same way. It's if you don't know if you're not from America or you don't know what you don't know what a s'more is. um, It is the traditional American campground snack uh if you have a fire in america somebody either um jokingly or not jokingly will suggest oh maybe we should make s'mores it, it, it's so ubiquitous if that even if there's an open fire that somebody didn't expect and you want to lighten the mood you say oh maybe we should make s'mores i said that or one of my friends did well we watched a humvee burn in iraq you know what i mean Um, It's a ubiquitous part of Americana, literally almost to the point food-wise of a cheeseburger. A cheeseburger is no less unethical than a fucking s'more or unhealthy, literally. Uh, A cheeseburger, the common one that you're going to get, like a McDonald's cheeseburger, fucking forget about it. But, you know, it's bread, carbs. Um, which is fine. Uh, beef, which is just, it's naturally unethical. It's fucking meat. I mean, if you're eating meat, there's a degree of unethicalness about it, especially considering like factory farming and shit, you know, um, all of the beef that you eat in every American cheeseburger is raised on land. We stole from native Americans. All the wheat that goes into the fucking buns is on land that we stole from native Americans. Some of them came from fucking plantations that got big off slave labor. You cannot, you cannot derivate between foods and say some is more, some are more unethical than others when you live in America, unless the harm is happening right now. And even to do so and suggest that somehow one bit of food is so much more unethical than the others is just like, it's insane. At a certain point, you have to just admit that, uh, you haven't done your research. Um, eating is one of my, uh, f- like the concept of food and um, food transit and distribution and how people develop their eating habits and their recipes is a passion of mine. Like I, it's something that became interesting to me when I worked in restaurants and has only gotten more intense um, with certain courses that I took in college. And now it's like literally the, The culmination of it is literally the novel that I'm writing now, Dragon on the Barrows, which is, you know, a bunch of cool shit. But the subtext is literally it's about food and how people eat and um, the, the, I don't know, the conflicts that grow up around eating, you know, Uh, Chiquita bananas are fucking unethical. My man, yeah, a Chiquita banana might arguably be arguably be more unethical than chocolate, depending on when you ate it. And you know, chocolate does deserve uh, its own like special thing. But the thing is, is you know, trying to articulate that through this lens, especially with this character, is amazing. Um, just a few minutes before this, um, or even maybe uh, an act or two earlier. <laughs> The chef quotes Martin Luther King jr. Um, <laughs> he basically says uh he he, he, he makes a a, a a nod to uh class conflict and freedom and says, "My motives tonight are pure, which they clearly are not right, and even the people are like, uh did he just quote Martin Luther king and they're like he did he did, but they don't fucking call him out on it, you know what I mean, so he is just like every um Every every fake pro labor politician is is represented in this guy, and his inability to know or articulate problems further than the most surface level understanding of them is wild. You know what I'm saying? Um, s'mores are a perfect dessert. Uh, they're they're just they're perfect. They taste good. Um, they're amazing. If, if you've never had a s'more. Um, you take a marshmallow and if I I can't really explain marshmallows, they're just fluffy little sugar balls. Um, if you heat one up over flame, the outside of it becomes very crispy and the inside of it becomes very, very melty. And it's great. If you put chocolate on top of it, the chocolate will melt. You sandwich those between two graham crackers and then you eat it and it's fucking wonderful. It tastes good. Start to finish. It's maybe a little bit heavy. You're going to want to drink some water with it. Maybe have a little bit of milk. But if you're out in the middle of the night and it's like, you know, summer break and you've been running around all day with your fucking family or friends or whatever, and you somehow managed to have a campfire and you're eating one of these things, it slaps. But the, 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 the cheeseburger is a perfect meal. It's ideal. First off, it's a fucking, it's a common man's food, which is one of the real reasons it's maligned. It's not maligned by anybody that's had a fucking cheeseburger, all right? Anybody that had a, has had a good one, fucking, they love it. I know that Europeans, especially the English, you guys don't have good cheeseburgers. I don't know what it is, but I've never seen anybody from England cook a good-looking cheeseburger. There are always these fat, wet obscenities that are like 10 feet tall, dagwood-looking, goofy, fuck... The, 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 the Gordon Ramsay should never be allowed to cook a fucking cheeseburger. My man does not know what he's doing. He is lost. Everything he makes looks disgusting. That's from my fucking culture. He, he's, he's, he's clueless. Charcoal bun. No, no. The thing about a cheeseburger is it's got everything that you need to make it another four hours. If you have a fucking cheeseburger in your hand, you are not starving today. All right. Maybe some people eat a little bit too much of it, but everybody does a little bit too much of something. The cheeseburger starts off with fucking burger meat. Ground beef patty, chuck, roast, whatever. It is fucking straightforward. 80-20, 75-25, whatever the fuck. Have it your way. Sirloin, gross, but I'll, 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 I'll allow it. Wagyu, why the fuck did you do that? You shouldn't have done that with Wagyu beef, but... It's, it, it's this ground beef, man It's a good start If you don't know Do not make your burgers too thick For my foreigners The, the fucking inch thick it, It's not a fucking steak, alright It's a goddamn burger It shouldn't be more than a quarter inch Maybe a little bit more than a quarter inch thick It should be About as wide as a fucking As wide as a drink coaster, right As long, wide around as a drink coaster And about as thick as three drink coasters on top of each other. When you put the patty together, it's got to be thicker than that and you've got to mash the middle out. You got to mash the middle down real hard with your hands so that it gets skinny. Otherwise it shrinks onto the middle. It's that's some fucking information. That's another reason I know goddamn Gordon Ramsay doesn't know how to cook a fucking burger cuz his burgers are always round on the sides. It shouldn't be fucking your your burger shouldn't look like a uh, uh, the disintegrating orbit of like a, of a dying star cluster, all right? It shouldn't be pointed on the sides like the fucking Uh, Starship Enterprise. It should be even all the way across so it cooks even. So he's like, oh, we've got a nice medium-well burger here. No, you have an uncooked burger. There's an uncooked burger. You didn't cook the burger, so it's uncooked and it's bleeding. It's fucking ground beef. You're going to get somebody sick. Don't fucking do that. You start with the beef, so you got your protein. Your protein is fucking handled. It's ready, all right? You put some cheese on there, I'll tell you this right now. I don't fucking put American cheese on my burgers. You know what I put on there? Provolone and mother fucking cheddar. The sharpest cheddar you can find. If you you cannot beat provolone and cheddar on a burger. That's fucking that, that that's that's Tyler's fucking secret. That's only my special ones. That's a rare. That's a rarity. Big old disc provolone slice, cheddar on top. I do a single patty because I cook mine a little thick. I go just above, just above the fucking quarter inch, half inch burger. All right. I still ain't making no fucking two inches. Okay. That's two burgers. Cut it in half cook the rest of it on top of that you got whatever the fuck you want okay what kind of bun do you want i don't know i want white bread i want dark bread i want a hawaiian roll because you know what fucking i don't give a shit what my blood sugar is i want to lose my eyes and my legs just so that i can taste one of them sweet sweet fucking hawaiian rolls one more time anything you want and then on top of that sauces sauces It can hold every sauce, any sauce you want. You put it on there. You want a fucking four-cheese bechamel on your burger? Got you, dog. You want uh, duck fat, confit, fucking potatoes, fried up, real crispy? Uh, Sure, why not? Onion ring? Got you. Bacon? Fucking, yeah. How do you want it? Uh, Crispy? Wrong? Or or smoked? Um, uh, what, what, What else? Mustard? Ketchup? Onions? On a sesame seed? Bun? Dude, that that shit is fucking, it's money. You can have it your way. That's why McDonald's is everywhere. You fucking degenerates in other countries, I swear to God, you don't get it. Just feed people what they want to fucking eat every once in a while, okay? Stop starving your people. They're hungry. They're small. Give them a fucking cheeseburger once or twice a year, okay? And people start being able to pick things up. They won't be falling asleep at 3 in the afternoon getting dragged into the jungle, lethargic, half down the gullet of a fucking ball python. Feed people. A cheeseburger's perfect, man. You got your carbs. You got your protein. You got your fats, all right? You got your salts. Everything is fucking in there. You eat a cheeseburger and you're good. It's the ideal meal. And the thing about it is you can always put a fucking statement on it. Not only is it a burger... It's your cheeseburger. When people eat my cheeseburger, they're like, "Damn, Tyler makes a good cheeseburger." I know what his cheeseburger is like. I can fucking remember that shit. It's a signature. It's money. <sighs> okay, that's enough. S'mores and cheeseburgers. That's my thing too. I mean, I guess we're, we're we're fading out of here. I know I know I've gone on too long, but I will say this. I have had a, a lot of problems recently, um, especially getting through COVID with people starting up new restaurants or even restaurants during COVID, where too many people my age are starting restaurants that they have no business designing the menu for the way that they design. It, it makes no sense. Um, if you can't cook, but you want to start up a restaurant, just start up a restaurant that, that specializes in the shit that you actually can make, Okay. Um, there's too many people out here that are trying to like sound like an Anthony Bourdain fucking, uh, is, is narrating your menu. You don't need that. All right. I don't need somebody. I don't need your fucking heirloom grain, 52 ounce fucking bread from made by uh, like stone mills in a retrofitted brew pub. Like, I just want fucking bread, all right? I don't even care how it's fucking made as long as it's fresh and it tastes good. If it's if it's fucking warm when you bring it to the air, I'm probably okay with it. I mean, after a certain point, I can't check up on everything. I'm not doing research on every single fucking thing I eat. I just can't. I cannot fucking do it. I can't. It's impossible. And I'm not going to just take you at your word. I'm just, I'm, you're just putting extra fucking, extra fucking words in there, okay? I don't care about your goddamn Uh, the, 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 the mix of like heirloom mustard seeds that you use to make your mustard. That's kind of cool. Put that on the back. All right. Once upon a time at our restaurants, you had one thing that you made from like super scratch and you sold it in a jar and you could buy one on the way out of the restaurant. I'm about that. That's the shit. That's the coolest thing you can do. I fucking love it. Reduce to that. But every place I'm going nowadays, in my town it especially too, and, like, I love food. I'm a foodie. Like, I fucking, I fuck with good food, and I can make all kinds of shit. Like, I'm mad good at it. But, like, I, I, everywhere I go in my foodie town of Louisville, everybody's got to put fucking uh, caramelized onions on everything. Caramelized onions on your grilled cheese, caramelized onions on your burger and caramelized onions on your fucking like breakfast eggs, man. I don't want your greasy little fucking brown vinegar worms in my fucking food. Okay. But then you're like, Oh, what would you just order without? But yeah, but like, dude, they put together this whole artisan goddamn burger. It, it, it all revolves around fixing the pla flavor profile of This acidic, high-power, aromatic, caramelized, sugary, fucking uh, brown flavor worms. So everything is fucking off now. Just let me build my own goddamn burger, okay? Stop. Also, people, bread has a fucking purpose. Every bread you've ever seen, there's a reason why it's shaped the way it's shaped. Stop putting greasy things that drip. On bread with holes in it and no bottom If you have a baguette The reason it's got the hard sides Right? Is so it'll hold shit in The The holes hold stuff in But if you don't have the bottom part of the bread Then it doesn't fucking hold anything in You're just dripping cheese Onto my finger What the fuck? did you? Why did you think that was a good idea? I like arugula Arugula's good Arugula's on fucking everything now I, I'm down with the arugula I'll calm down, but like really all I want from a restaurant, you know, like I just want one place, at least in my neighborhood, a fucking burger. I want eggs. I want bacon and I want that bitch to be open when I'm actually hungry. I would be fine with restaurants not being open until fucking 5 p.m. I would be happy about that. I wouldn't even give a shit. Oh, yeah, you can't eat lunch there. They're not open for lunch. What are they open for? Are they open for dinner? Oh, yeah, they're open for dinner. Well, that's a fucking restaurant then, isn't it? I go there for dinner. When's your restaurant open? Oh, we're closed on fucking, like, Mondays. (laughs) Why are you closed on Monday? It's the only time I needed you. I don't want to cook on a Monday. I don't cook for a living. You fucking cook on a Monday. Jesus Christ. I digress. I think with that, I'm going to start wrapping up the episode. I love you guys. Thanks for sticking around for this one. It's been a, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. I'm, I'm, uh, even I'm slap happy putting this together at the end. We're, we're, only, we're only four hours into it. You know what I mean? If you enjoyed this episode and you like this stuff, if you're new to the podcast, please follow us, like, subscribe, comment, fucking share shit. Do me a favor. If you like this episode, Right, I like this episode of the West Side Fairy Tales, and painstakingly draw out the entire extended HTML uh, web web address for it. Take that, put it in a bottle, and throw it into the yard of some random person you've never seen before, and then they'll get a message in the bottle like, "Who the fuck did this? Who the fuck?" Is it? <laughs> What the fuck is a Westside Fairy Tales? Why is this guy talking about cheeseburgers and farces for like 10 hours? Um Also, if you really appreciate this, you like keeping this shit on, 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 the, on the internet, on on the YouTubes, on the webs and me making stuff. Uh please, please, please consider joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash Westside Fairy Tales. Patreon.com slash Westside Fairy Tales. Look at me now that I'm, I'm now that I'm past everything, I'm in announcer mode. I'm a little slap happy. I'm about to get off of here and uh, i I'm, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play a little bit of fucking Death Stranding. I'm excited about it. I'm fucking stoked. I'm gonna tell you guys when, when you think you think this was long? Wait till I start talking about Death Stranding, because that shit goes so it goes so fucking hard. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, new episode of the West Side Fairy Tales, new fictional episode of Sin Carriers Sin Carriers, part 10. Dance? No. Feast. No. Dance. No. Feast, it's part, part 10 is feast, um, part 10 feast coming in, uh, a weekish, two weeks, probably two weeks. Um, cause these are taking a while and I just, I, I, I take my time with them and I try to put them together, uh, nicely. But as we slowly, as I slowly get these out further and f- faster and faster, I'm, I'm, I'm rapidly, uh reapproaching my first tuesday of the month deadline that i set for myself immediately broke and then never achieved again since god damn it <laughs> uh we're also on youtube i don't do too much over there um i know i've been promising that i'm going to stream but i think i'm like overworked and i i probably shouldn't do that and i should focus on um everything else so i'll be doing everything else and hopefully you guys will be seeing some more of that shit soon uh merch in the merch store all of our shirts and stuff are i don't know where they're sourced from i don't have enough money to ethically source shirts i I buy them from printful printful makes shit for me and then and then they send it to you guys and i love you guys uh buying my shirts so please please buy my shirts and wear my shirts we go up to size 5xl down to size 2xl women's no men's 2xl men's so we got a little bit for everybody. Get the biggest shirt you can and cuddle up with your best friend for the rest of this cold, thankless, and unforgiving winter that will surely result in the death of most of us. And uh, yeah, with all that said, um, I love you guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. Um, this ended up being two hours longer than the first one that I recorded, so uh, eat shit, I guess. <laughs> And until next time, as always, stay safe out there. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous... West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash God.